0: What truly matters is teachers' expertise.
1: The most important tip for new teachers is to set out your boundaries.
0: 44% of jobs will be automated. It reinforces cycles of disadvantage. Hello listeners and lovers of learning and welcome to episode 46 of the Education Research Reading Room, the podcast that brings you into the discussion with inspiring educators and education researchers. I'm Ollie Lovell and it's a pleasure to be your host in the ERRR. I'll start today by acknowledging the Woiwurrung and Boonrung people of the Kulin Nation on whose lands this podcast was recorded, pay respects to elders past and present, and acknowledge that colonization and dispossession are ongoing processes. Today we're speaking to Tom Bennett. Tom is the founder of ResearchEd, a fantastic organization that provides an empowering platform for teachers to learn and connect around education, and in particular, around research-informed practice. Since 2013, Research Ed has visited three continents and six countries, attracting thousands of followers. And since 2015, Tom has been advising the UK government on school behaviour policy, a role for which he's earned the title Behavioural Tsar. Tom has written four books on education, one of which we're discussing today. And all round, Tom is a core figure within the UK and global education scene. The book of Tom's that we're discussing today is Running the Room, a hugely popular book on behavior management that is flying off the shelves at present. Within the interview, we discuss habits, routines, norms, and go into specific detail about entry and exit procedures, approaches to running a first lesson with a new class, scripts to use when students make offensive remarks, and much, much more. I took a lot of key lessons away from this discussion and I now feel much better equipped to deal with and crucially to plan for student behavior in my classroom. I'm confident that by the end of this episode, you'll feel the same way too. And once again this month, I'm very happy to share that this episode is brought to you by John Cat Educational. Tom Bennett's book, Running the Room, is one of the newest additions to the John Cat range. And as always, you can use the code ERRR30 to get 30% off Tom's book and many other fantastic books from JCE. In fact, we've had a ripper run of episodes of the ERRR over the past few months that include books from the John Cat range. In June, we had Oliver Caviglioli discussing his book, Dual Coding with Teachers. July was James Mannion and Kate McAllister talking about their learning skills curriculum and their book, Fear is the Mind Killer*. We broke from JCE in August to learn about self-explanation with Alexander Renkel, but returned at the start of September to hear about The Most Important Thing from Tom Sherrington, the author of the hugely popular *Rosenshine's Principles in Action and, more recently, Teacher Walkthroughs. Some other John Cat books that I'm hanging out to read are Putting Star First, A Blueprint for Revitalizing Our Schools by John Tomsett and John Utley, and the keenly awaited Generative Learning in Action by Mark and Zoe Enser, which summarizes Fiorella and Mayer's generative learning model. Mark and Zoe's Generative Learning in Action book is book two of the In Action series, following Tom Sherrington's first book, Rosenshine's Principles in Action. I'm delighted that my forthcoming book, cognitive load theory in action will form book three of the series and a little more on that later. For now, don't forget the discount code ERRR30 for 30% off and you can find a link to the Cat bookstore in the show notes to this episode. Now, without further ado, let's jump straight into episode 46 with Tom Bennett. Tom Bennett, welcome to the Education Research Reading Room.
1: Hey, it's great to be here, Ollie, and I'm loving the new moustache.
0: Thanks, thanks, Tom. Unfortunately, the audience can't see that. We'll have to include a picture in the show notes.
1: I'll keep referring. to Promise you.
0: <laughs> First question we ask people is Tom is if you meet someone new and they say hi, Tom, what is it that you do? What's your answer?
1: Yeah, well, i I've, I've kind of um, my problem is that in order to make sure my, my financial future is secure, I do as many things as possible. I, I guess I'm the behaviour advisor to the Department for Education in the UK. I write books about education. And I'm the director of research ed. There you go. That's, that's pretty tight.
0: Wonderful. A big question now. What do you think should be the purpose of school-based education?
1: Yeah, I mean, I, I, I talk about this quite a bit, actually. I think that if I can take a kind of philosophical sidestep here, I'm not sure that education intrinsically has an aim. In fact, I'm pretty sure that it doesn't. I think that education is the vehicle for people's aims. People have aims for education. Education can do loads of things. Education can make people better citizens. Education can aim to make people democratic participants. Education can give people vocational opportunities. It can create uh, rounded human beings. It can build character skills. It can, heaven forbid, focus on grades and knowledge. You know, it can do all of these things. But the beauty of it is that, that schools can do all, lots of these things simultaneously. And it's rare you would just pick one strand. So rather than say, what's education for? We say, you know, what do you want education to be for? Because it can do lots and lots of things.
2: mm
0: Yes, and what do you want education to be for?
1: <laughs> Damn it, you're trying to pin me down. Okay, I think, I mean, I came up with a few answers for this. I think that, a bit like the LAPD, you know, education should protect and serve. I think that the role of the school, the fundamental role of the school is one which isn't mentioned explicitly in pedagogical discourse, which is, is, is to look after children. You know, it's to make sure that they're safe, to make sure that they are free from victimization and bullying to make sure that their physical needs are being met and so on. You know, the, the, the sense of a school being in loco parentis means that, we're, you know, we, we've got to take care of them. I had kids seven years ago, and you don't have to be a parent to appreciate this, but it really became quite sharp for me that one of the main roles of an institution, if you're going to hand your child over to them, is to make sure they come back at the end of the day, you know, in one piece, but also not emotionally bruised or, or traumatized or anything. And then following on from that is is is, is to educate, is, is to... I guess I take quite a Hersheyan view, which is to instill in children as much knowledge about the world in different domains as we can possibly replicate. I'm an unashamed champion of the fact that I mean, civilization could, could go in a generation if we stop teaching stuff. The role of the teacher is essential to the role of society. It's it's one of the glues that keeps it together. The teacher or and you know, and all the roles that derive from that are the people which ensure that generational knowledge is passed down from line to line. And without that, we revert back to kind of uh, pre-Bronze Age into the Stone Age faculties, which we, you know, which which we kind of possess intrinsically, which I guess Sweller would call the core skills which function within mm-hmm. us. So, yes, I think education is about that. Cool. Is that hideously vague? I'm not sure.
0: That's good. And you mentioned Hershey in there, I assume you were referring to E.D. Hirsch.
1: As opposed to the, the well known American uh, chocolate bar, yes, Hershey. Yes, yes, yes as opposed <laughs>
0: to. Great. So, yeah, two main themes that came out there, kind of the idea of, to serve and protect, which I in line with the idea of preserving and passing forward cultural knowledge and scientific knowledge and things that on which our society is built. Very good. and And within that, one of the interesting things within the book I found was that you talked about – educators should be able to rally around one common goal at least, and that is the goal of keeping children safe. So that was interesting to hear that come out of your answer then as well.
1: Yeah, and also, I mean, the, the reason why I make that sell, and I always make this picture I'm doing like, like a longer speech about behaviour, is that sometimes when you talk about behaviour, and I don't want to get into behaviour until you're ready to do so, but and sometimes when you mention behaviour, people often think, oh, you know, you just mean punishing kids. And I, and I go, no, it's, it, it, it's about them. It's about trying to unlock and access the aims of education that that you want for it. So if you want a child to be the next Gandhi, you know, the next revolutionary, then they need to be able to behave. and They need an environment where they can learn to do so. If you want children to be the next Shakespeare, then they need an environment where they've got the ability to do so. So whatever your aim of education is, good behaviour is intrinsic to that. It's not some kind of bolt-on which you can just say, yeah, we'll try and teach, and then we'll do a bit of behaviour. You know, like magic dust, you sprinkle in the whole equation. Behaviour is what we do at school. And when we start to unpack that idea, that's when it starts to become a little bit clearer as to how we need to do it.
0: On the topic of behavior, how does one become the advisor for the UK government on behavior?
1: There's a really secret initiation ceremony, which I can't possibly tell you about. (laughs) Listen, I'm the first to to admit here that becoming a behavior advisor is is a really strange thing because there's no official certification process. There's no degree you can go through that makes you good or bad. Behavior management, specifically relating to to classrooms, you can have a you can have a PhD in psychology and not be able to run a classroom. And I'm very happy to admit that that, that, that as with most things, any success, a large amount of it is luck mm. <laughs> and hard work and and maybe some talent, but a hell, of a lot of luck. So the way I became the behavior czar, <laughs> I may as well tell you my route into it, and then you can work it as a general route. Which is, that I was a teacher for about 14 years. Before that, I used to run nightclubs and. But, but the teaching was was was, was fascinating. I actually adored it. And I frequently I say it saved my life. And I was rubbish at behaviour. I was you know I was terrible. <laughs> I didn't know how to manage the behaviour of children. And I walked into really challenging classrooms, and the kids would swear at me, and, and they wouldn't listen, and they wouldn't do what I asked them to do. And I tried everything. I tried to be you know I tried to be funny. I tried to I tried to uh, you know making the work easier. I tried massively differentiating. I tried uh, making things accessible. I tried speaking their language. You know, just everything just fell apart. And you had nice kids and you are less nice kids. But um, I remember just thinking, I've got to get better at this. And I also remember thinking, why wasn't, why wasn't I trained at doing this? And it took me a few years to realize that there was even training that you could do. Because as I frequently mentioned, I had a 45-minute behavior lecture to become a teacher. That was it. I got a lecture on one behavior and then good luck. Mm-hmm. Which is asking a hell of a lot of your mentor or your school to be able to train and teach you. And the types of things that they themselves may not be very good at already. So it's very hit and miss and unfortunately I missed. I spent years like the karate kid, you know, training myself in secret dungeons and just reading everything I could and going to as many training courses as I could, but also just trying to teach and making lots of mistakes and learning by trial and error. And eventually, I I, I frequently say this is like, um, it was like learning to drive by driving a dodgem car. You know, you bump into things until you learn not to bump into things. and, And sometimes that helps and sometimes it doesn't. And then I started to write about it. I started to write for trade magazines and the magazines like the CES, which is, which is um, a, a big t- a teacher publication over here. And then I wrote, wrote for newspapers and so on. And eventually I started to kind of focus on behavior writing, which didn't make me an expert in it. But it meant I was thinking about it a lot in conjunction with my experience and everything I was reading. And then the TES asked me to be the behavior advisor, which meant I started to advise people on it. So I had to really start thinking about it. I had to make sure I was honest. And from there, books followed. And from books... Training followed, and I was really, really fortunate. I think one of the best training grounds after being a teacher for me was I was fortunate enough to go into lots of schools and look at the systems and observe classroom teachers. And in conjunction with reading lots about group psychology and adolescent psychology and child psychology, I kind of tried to put all these two things together until eventually, through the wonderful medium of things like Twitter and social media and so on, there's this weird democratising effect through social media whereby... You can write something and all of a sudden you find that cabinet minister is reading it and they ask you to you know, do a variety of rules. And I think that's fascinating because, I mean, I know it's a different topic, but 15 years ago, if you had a good idea, if you were lucky and you are a teacher, if you were lucky, your idea might just about reach the back of the staff room. You know, if you were lucky. Whereas now you can have a good idea as a teacher and write about it and put it on Twitter and somebody in Australia thinks, yeah, that's not a bad idea, or more likely, you're an idiot, I hate you so <laughs> so so you know i think that's a, I think that's a really healthy part of the ecosystem which we now inhabit there's a darker side too so all of those things conflated until eventually i was asked in 2015 by the secretary of state to be the behavior advisor which the press then called czar you know which is really helpful obviously when you've got more no power over anybody or anything and also with an unpaid role you know it's an, it's an independent advisory role so what it is is it's me saying what i think as opposed to trying to promulgate a, a government line. Listen, that was a long answer for a short question. If we keep going like this, we'll be finished in five hours.
0: That's okay. No worries, cool. Tom. That's no, very very interesting. And um, interesting points about, you know, the way that the ability of teachers' ideas to reach across the world has changed yeah, yeah, yeah. over the last 15. I, I couldn't agree more. So there, Tom, you, you mentioned a dark side of kind of Twitter and things there, but I wanted to talk about another darkness now, and that was one that you you mentioned in the book. I was very taken by the idea of the dark deal that you talk about oh, teachers. Thanks,
1: but I think I talk about the darkness in my soul.
0: Yeah, well, I thought about going there, but I thought we'd better keep it PG. So, so let's talk about the dark deal that teachers often strike with students and the danger of that dark deal. Could you please tell listeners a little bit about that?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Those of a nervous disposition should look away and turn off now. I found that a couple of things. First of all, I found that teacher training and behavior management was really weak. I mean, not just for me, but I mean, for lots and lots of people. And the more I pursued this, particularly in my, in my my role with the Department of Education, I realized that this was a systemic weakness. And then, you know, like MC Hammer, I've been around the world. and I've seen a lot of country systems, country systems, and they're very similar. You know, I, I don't know any country that really trains as well. So you got all these teachers flooding the system. with actually very little idea about how to manage the behavior of children. You know, they might have some pedagogy and some subject knowledge. Very little idea about managing the behaviour, particularly of challenging children or children with challenges. And in that circumstance, you tend to have what I call a very reactive model of behaviour management, which is that you just try and teach the thing you want to teach, whether that be number bonds or, or you know alphabetic recognition or the history of the kings of England or something, which I'm sure is a big deal in Australia. And you just try and teach it, and then you wait for kids to misbehave, and when they do, you respond. So that's what I call the reactive model. I stress you've got to react. You often get what I call this dark deal whereby you struggle with behavior so much and you realize every time you ask the kids to do something they don't want to do, a lot of them rebel against it, some more than others. And eventually what some teachers do, and in fact I'm going to suggest this is a very common thing, is you eventually strike a deal with the kids, which is, I'm not going to ask you to do anything you don't really want to do as long as you don't muck about too much. And the kids know this. I mean, it's, it's, it's never really expressed. So explicitly is that, but you can see it, you know, new teachers coming in, brimming with big ideas. You know, we're going to do all this by the end of the lesson. And then they realize by the end of the first few lessons, they've done about a quarter because kids were mucking about or misbehaving or being rude or just not doing what they asked asked them to do, or they didn't know how. And it's very sad because what that represents is an enormous winding down of of your expectations and your standards for children. You know, it's the low aspirations for children. We just, you just accept a bit less and you become comfortable with it. Uh, You know, as Kamis said, you know, in the end, we could become used to anything. And I think that's true. Human beings are very flexible. We're good at getting used to things, but it's also one of the problems.
0: Yeah, totally. And I thought that was pretty powerful because, you know, you link that idea in with the Matthew effect and the fact that often we do strike that dark deal with the students who misbehave the most and who are the weakest. And we say, look, you're playing up. Just stop playing up. I'll leave you alone. If you leave me alone, let me teach the rest of the class. And the problem just compounds over the years.
1: Yeah, absolutely. You've struck upon probably the core of what I think is important with behavior management, which is that I believe that the children come into your classroom of whatever age and they, they arrive with different aptitudes and abilities and habits and values and ideas about what education is and so on, but also different abilities. You know, you get some children who come to your classroom who have been really fortunate and they've had parents that have explained to them things like, this is how you share. This is, how you, this is how you wait your turn. This is how you ask politely. But also this is how you speak up confidently when you need to. You know, social skills, let's call that.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: I call it social capital. And, then, and then these children might also have cultural capital too. Like they've been exposed to lots of different types of forms of art and poetry and science and ideas and stuff. And then those children may also have been given lots of great gateway skills like numeracy and literacy at home. So, so already they're, they're five steps ahead of their, of their peers. And those kids come to the classroom. And they already know better than a lot of their peers how to, how to flourish and do well at school. And add into that part the idea that not only do they have these habits and aptitudes, but they might also have values that help them to flourish in school. You know, their parents might have taught them that education is important and that, uh, you know, you need to try and work hard and it's great if you do. And you know, don't let anyone push you about, but also get along with people. You know, nice basic values that can help people exist in communities. That child starts... Ten squares ahead on the great game board of life to the child that comes from a, a, a background that doesn't have these advantages, and because of that, we get the Matthew effect—you know, the well-known effect whereby you know those that have shall be given, and to those that have not shall be taken away. The first child comes into your classroom, and they're getting on with the work you're giving them, and they can do it already. But if you don't intervene in some way to support the kid that doesn't have those skills, habits, and aptitudes, then that child just gets further and further behind, and then. From the teacher's point of view, you might think, well, it's the kid's fault. And I believe in responsibility and I believe in moral responsibility. But at the same time, children, particularly younger children, you've got to appreciate the fact that children don't invent themselves. Children don't just suddenly create themselves. They are the products of their experiences and their backgrounds and their circumstances. And it is largely not their fault how they've turned. You can either look at these different types of children and say, you know, I'm just going to try and teach the ones that want to listen. Or you can say to yourself, no, I'm going to roll my sleeves up and try and reach these children too, for the benefit of all. And if you don't do that, then you get the Matthew effect. And the disadvantage gap just gets bigger and bigger and bigger. And we know that it starts you know, way before they start school. And it just gets wider and wider and wider. And if you want to do anything about that, I'm going to suggest that we do. Then we need to address that and start, I guess, teaching behavior like it's a curriculum. Understanding the behavior is a really complex series and network of skills and habits and aptitudes and abilities, and that it's learned somewhere, and that the ability to focus on a piece of text, the ability to read text, the ability to wait your turn and share and be patient and be kind and so on, these things are learned somewhere. And if a child hasn't been lucky enough to experience that in their own home, then it is the job, it's the moral responsibility of the teacher, but also the school community to do so. And I don't know if you want to get into that a bit more, but you know that's, that, that, that's the summary of my thoughts in that area.
0: Yeah, totally. You've already alluded to this. But I'd say my biggest takeaway from the book is this idea of prevention or proactive behaviour management rather than reactive behaviour management. And you, you convey that quite powerfully in the book with two metaphors. One is the idea that fences are better than ambulances, but the other which you, 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 know, you build out a little bit more is the idea of fire safety. Did you want to tell us about this metaphor of fire safety in relation to behaviour management, why you think this proactive approach is so important?
2: yeah
1: absolutely. Can I just digress slightly and say that throughout the book, whenever I wanted to use a really great aphorism, you know something that I'd heard somewhere like it's better to have a fence on the top of a cliff than an ambulance at the bottom of it and I think, oh boy, that's great. And then you'd find it it was usually attributed to someone like Gandhi or something <laughs> and then you find that it wasn't attributed; to, it wasn't actually Gandhi or somebody else, and then somebody else once said, you know great words, gravity towards famous lips, anyway, that's my digression. Okay, so a couple of things. First of all, I mentioned reactive behavior management, which is where we just respond to behavior management. The problem is that when we respond to problematic behavior, it's already happened. And that if all you ever do is respond to misbehavior, and you've got to respond, it's an important part of behavior management. If that's all you do, then what we find is that children only ever associate behavioral direction with getting in trouble, being told off, being told the wrong, being told that they've failed. And that there's a much better way of doing this, which is which is not to wait for children to fall off the cliffs and then scrape up the remains. That's a lovely metaphor. I must remember never to use that one again. (laughs) But to make sure they don't fall off the cliff in the first place, which is to say proactive behavior management, which brings me back to the idea I alluded to earlier on, which is that one of the principal roles of the educator is not just to teach the curriculum, but to teach the behavior curriculum. To teach children the skills, the habits, the aptitudes, even the values that they're going to need in order to flourish, not just as students, but also as human beings, as a, as a member of a community. And I think that the best schools and classrooms I've ever seen do exactly this. And that it's, it's a really explicit part of their teaching. You know, they'll constantly talk about the expectations of the classroom, but not just the expectations. Making the expectations really explicit, not vague, not ambiguous. Don't make people guess. About what you mean, you know, be really concrete and say, I need your bag to be here. I need you to be sat there. I need you to be lined up here. I need your work to look like this. This is how we ask for a question and so on. And really systematically unpack what you mean by good behavior. Because another problem is because we don't discuss enough, people very frequently don't have a very clear idea what they mean themselves by good behavior. Mm. Um, you know, so we got this really a vague idea. I want you to behave. But that means a hundred things to a hundred kids. You know, most kids don't see themselves as the villains. They're the, they're, the, they're the heroes and heroines of their own self-penned melodrama, which means they tend to justify their own actions quite a lot. You know, and even if they're bullies, they'll say, well, he deserved it or something like that. You know, so you've got to get into that a bit more and teach the behavior that you want to see because for the most part, if you make it explicit, a lot of children would just go, okay, fair enough, I get it. Thank you. I'm glad to know what I should be doing just now. And then once we acknowledge that it needs to be explicit, we have to acknowledge that some kids aren't very good at it. So if you're asking a kid to read quietly for ten minutes, that might be nine and a half minutes longer than they've ever read before in their lives. So first of all, teach them the gateway literacy skills. You know, teach them how to phonetically decode and and, and how to appreciate meaning and context and so. on. But not just that. Teach them how to focus, because focus is a habit. I mean, I've, I've, because I've got young children, I've lost the habit of reading long texts. It's been a long time since I really finished a book. Properly finished a book, and I just skimmed it or dipped in and out. It's a habit. It's harder to do when you have lost it. So once you're explicit about teaching the behavior you want to see, and you also supportively teach children over and over again, that's what I call prevention rather than cure. Because you're helping children to do the right thing before they need to do it. You helping them to understand what it is, and you're helping them how to do it. And, and all of these things conspire to make it easier for children to behave. And That's another thing from my book, make it easy for them to behave, not harm. If you'd expect them to guess what you mean by good behavior or you'd ask them to do something that they find hard, they'll be surprised if they fall off the cliff a few times. And and that brings me back to the other metaphor you mentioned, which was kind of fire brigade management, which is simply reactive versus proactive in that if your goal is for buildings not to burn down, you could make buildings very flammable but have a really good fire brigade. Or you could make sure they don't burn down in the first place. You know, the metaphor may go so far. Um and one of the other problems we find is that people aren't often not trained in how to respond to misbehavior either.
2: Mm. So
1: you get the massive overreaction and shouting and being massively overpunitive and you know expecting people to be corrected by being aggressive with them and so on. And 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 again, these these methods aren't entirely useful either. So it's a bit of a mess mm. in behavior management. And one of the things that I think has been really interesting over the past five or ten years is we've really started to think and talk about evidence and. Evidence-informed education, and with a lot of approaches looking at pedagogy and you know direct instruction and in space practice and Rosenshain's principles and you know all kinds of great stuff. And I think that we're starting now to look at behaviour in a similarly mature way, rather than in an ideologically driven one. You know about how children should behave and what should work with them and so on. And, and I, for one, welcome our new insect overlords. Okay.
0: Nice one, Tom. So in terms of that, in terms of being explicit about our expectations and really teaching students what we want from them, obviously to do that, we have to know exactly what it is that we want students to do. And before you talked about the way that teachers are often taught in teacher training, you know, to do behavior management, which is frequently just like a 45 minute lesson or a yeah. few tips here and there. When we think about the content of those 45 minute lessons in teacher training, I know my personal experience, and the experience of lots of other people is the suggestion that we take approach, which is we negotiate with students what the classroom rules are. Like there's some sort of process where we have a classroom discussion, we agree how we want people to behave, you know, we talk about the importance of learning and things like that. You might write up an accord for the classroom, everyone signs it. that kind of thing. What's your thoughts on that kind of approach?
1: Yeah, don't do that. (laughs) Don't do that. That's one of the worst ideas I've ever heard in my life. Only somebody massively driven by ideology would think that was a good idea with children. When I hear that kind of line, I also wonder if the person who came up with it has ever met a child you know, or who's ever worked in a challenging classroom, you know, a reasonably challenging comprehensive classroom where some of the kids are biddable, some of the kids can be persuaded, and some of the kids are are hell-bent on your doom. (laughs) You know, a real classroom, basically, right? I just think it's weird you hear this kind of nonsense. I'll tell you why it's nonsense. Because classrooms aren't democracies. And democracy isn't the ideal model for every uh, system of governance and, you know, at every every level in society. Families aren't democracies. Mum and dad. Don't negotiate with the children if it's okay to stay up till three o'clock in the morning. Your yeah, mom and dad say it's bedtime now. And we're still dealing with children here. And the kids need us to be grown up. So for a start, I just I think it's I think it's somewhat facile to try to map that process onto a very different human relationship, which is the teacher-student relationship. Secondly, I don't believe in lying to children. I think I think you shouldn't lie. I think lying is bad and people who do it should think that we're not doing it. And If you say to children, we're going to discuss the rules, then frequently you're lying. I mean, you may discuss them, but are you really going to accept a rule that you don't agree with? Even if the whole class thinks, no, but we must. And I'll give you a perfect example. I used to work in a a, a special school, like a people referral unit, which is like a very small school for children with extreme behavioral uh, difficulties. And because I was the groovy teacher, I said to them, hey, guys, let's, let's come up with the rules together. Yeah. You know, while I passed the joint around. We didn't, that's We all had our own. <laughs> Sorry, I'm just kidding. And I said to kids, let's make up our own rules. And one of our kids said, put his hand up and said, OK, can we have a cigarette breaks? These are like 10 year olds. And I said, No, we can't have cigarette breaks. And, he, and the kid actually said to me, No word of lie. He said, Oh, so we're not making up the rules then. <laughs> I went, No, no, you're right. We're well, not really. No. You know, And the guy said, Why don't you just tell us what you want the rules to be? And I went, That's a really good idea. And I just I, I admired the honesty of that exchange because it was true and it cut through the BS. It's very rare that a child will ever come up with a rule or a routine or a behavioural expectation, which will surprise you. And if as, a, if, if, as a grown man or woman, you can't think of five or ten short rules that will help a classroom run more efficiently, then I suggest you, you take yourself back into teacher training. You know, things like no shouting over each other. Nobody leaves the classroom without permission. We treat each other with good manners. You know, <laughs> this isn't rocket science. And while it's good to have a discussion with kids, and I think this is where I do slightly, agree. if you want to get children to behave, a large part of that is persuasion. You don't have the Jedi mind trick. You're not Professor X. You're not Max von Sydow from The Exorcist shouting, the power of Christ compels you. You don't have that magic ability. You know, almost all behavior management is persuasion. And so one of the things you want to do is sell. So Mm -hmm. sell, hard sell. You say to the kids, this is why we're behaving this way. and this, This is what you'll get out of it. And this is why it's important. And this is why I value it. And I promise you, you'll get about three quarters. The kids go, oh, "Okay, fair enough. That sounds really good." And I'll give you an example. Whenever I started a class, I used to have a little bit of a script along the lines of, "Welcome to my classroom. My name's Mr. Bennett. This year we're going to learn about philosophy and, and ethics or something. I really love my subject. Hope you do too. I know that all of you can succeed in one way or another. I don't care what how good you are at it now, but we're all going to get really good at this. Or we're going to get better. I'll do my best to make sure that happens." And I need you to work as hard as you can. And in return, we're going to look after each other and we're going to have a dignified space, safe and calm space. You know, and then I would say, and this is the behavior we need in order to achieve that. And that was my little frame. It's not fancy, it's not complicated or, or complex. But it basically it's got all the beats that I want. I matter, you matter, the subject matters. This is why we're going to behave the way we are, and this is the behavior we need to do. And kids just go, okay, fair enough. When well, you lead them by the hand like that, they go fair enough. But if you walk in and say, boom, let's look at Descartes or something. <laughs> you know, oh, you're talking, now you're in trouble. You're basically playing guess my rules with the kids. explicit. Teach them what you want them to be able to do and you'll get much further with them. And you'll get a minority of kids who still don't play along with that. But you'll get a lot farther than most kids.
0: That's great. That's great, Tom. That's, that's a great script, actually, that, that intro script. That's really powerful. I'd, I'd love to come back to a few more scripts later because it's something you spend a bit of time on in the book. One of the most powerful ways you talk about of kind of one of the key components of persuasion, which is something you mentioned there, is the idea of norms and culture within a classroom. How is it that the right norms and culture can be established over time by a teacher?
1: Yeah, sure. I'm not a psychologist, nor do I have a degree in psychology, but I think happily, a lot of this is intelligible even to the lay person, which is that human beings are social animals. I mean, Aristotle used to write, that, that was the bedrock of Aristotle's philosophy. You know, man is a social animal, he said somewhat misogynistically. I'm sure he meant women too. Although no, Aristotle probably didn't. And we know that a lot of our actions are massively impacted. A lot of our behaviours are massively impacted by the, by the behaviors of others. We take our cues from other people all the time. You know, this isn't just a small thing. This is a huge thing. It's probably along the lines of, you know, if I can use Maslow's hierarchies as, as a model, albeit an imperfect one, you know, one of the things that we're all seeking deep down—this, you know, this is a bit, this is a bit, you know, philosophical—is—is we all seek meaning. We all seek value in our lives. We need to matter. We need to feel like we're not rubbish. I remember I used to—I used to do a bit of work with the the Big Issue project in London. I don't know if you have it in Australia. We do. It's based on a homeless project. And one of the, some of the homeless guys used to say to me that one of the biggest privations of their existence was feeling like they didn't matter, nobody cared about them. You know, people stepping over them. I think this goes to the heart of what it means to be human. And kids feel this, and adults feel this. And because of that, people will do a lot to try and achieve the esteem of others. Now, as you get a bit older, hopefully, you learn to value yourself intrinsically. You know, you learn to be proud of yourself. And you don't need other people to tell you you're a good person. You don't need a 1,000 likes on Facebook or whatever. To tell you a good person. But when you're very young, it's hard not to. You know, you're very easily influenced by other people. And we know that in the adolescent phase, particularly, that need for approval spikes. It's it's, it's, a, it's a normative problem. But it still applies to all, all, all human ages and cultures. And because of that, that's a problem in the classroom. Because if you've got a culture, if it's normal for kids to be late or to shout out and so on, then that behavior normalizes and draws other people towards it. Because people want to fit in, people are looking for the approval of their peer groups. Not, not, this doesn't work flatly and universally across all children equally, but it's just a big impact. It's a big effect in the classroom. Now, that problem can also be one of our ways out, because if we can create new norms, then we'll create something which children will gravitate towards and aspire to, because they believe it's normal and they believe this is how you achieve esteem and this is how you fit in with other people. Even kind of the crazy loner in your classroom will seek out other crazy loners. You know, we seek peer groups. That's a big, big influence on it. So one of the ways that teachers can try and do this is, again, it's, it's, a lot of this isn't complicated or requires a PhD to understand. You establish norms yourself. You become the norm maker because you are anyway. I mean, even if you don't know it, even if you choose not to or you're unaware of your responsibility in this area, if you walk into a classroom and you don't see anything when a kid says something racist or when a kid's late or when a kid throws a pen at another kid. If you don't say anything, you've enabled that behavior. You've normalized it to some extent. You know, there's a good line from Douglas Lamothe where he says, what you permit, you promote. And I think it's true. By, but even by doing nothing, you've said to the kids, I accept that. Now, as an adult in the classroom, your example, like it or not, has influence on these children. Now, you might, you might feel powerless, but you're not. Weirdly enough, you're not. But you, but what you can do is you can you can give up all your power. You can give up all your all, all, all the ability you have to influence them in a positive way. So in that context, you can create bad norms. You can also create good norms too by emphatically and repetitively expressing what normal behaviour looks like in this classroom. In this classroom, we do this. In this classroom, we don't swear at people. In this classroom, we don't use racist epithets and so on. And and in that context, it doesn't necessarily. It's not like magic. You can't just make a norm by saying it. Well, that's the beginning of it or indeed that perhaps the skeleton of it which is you clarifying what it is and, and constantly mentioning it once you've mentioned it you then have to demonstrate it which is to say you make it easy for them to understand you give them examples you pick out role models in the classroom you say look there's billy doing this great thing that i said we all should do that's a great example of you know waiting patiently that's a great example of a really fast transition that's a great example of being kind to somebody right so you Teach them what it means. You demonstrate it constantly. You hold them to account when people don't meet that norm. So you challenge it when people don't follow that norm. So if the norm is to hold the door open and somebody doesn't, you say, ah, Billy, could you just go back and hold that door open? Because I noticed you didn't. You forgot. Right? And you insist upon it. And that insistence also helps to reinforce it. Uh, You reteach when necessary. You know, if people people didn't grasp what you meant, if people weren't too sure, or they're not very good at it, you give them an opportunity to learn it again and again and again. And that's how you build norms in the classroom. Yeah, and crucially, you've got to expect people to do it. I mean, that sounds a reasonable simple process. but it's, it's very hard to do in practice because it requires a lot of the teacher to remember their own norms and to stick to them themselves. But the more you do that, the more children will start to gravitate towards it. And if children realize that they will get the attention they need from following these norms. If children realize they'll get esteem from following these norms, then slowly but surely you'll, you'll pull someone towards you. And the example I normally use here is, let's say you've got a class and you said to the kids, you know, when was the Battle of Hastings? Sorry, this is a very Anglo example. <laughs> I apologize. I will talk about Mr. Bean next. And, um, you know, when was, when was the Battle of Hastings? And little Ryan sticks his hand up and shouts, 1066, sir. And what the teacher might do then is they might think, Oh, I don't like him shouting out. But you know what? He never answers the question. So you wave your finger at Ryan and say, Ryan, what was I said about shouting out? But yes, it's 1066. And, and then you move on. And, what you, you, and you think you've upheld your norm of not shouting out. But what you've actually done is you, you've, you've normalized shouting out because you've accepted it. Ryan got everything he wanted from that exchange. Ryan got, um, he got attention. He got the answer right. He broke a rule and got away with it. He got one over on his peers. He's basically Billy the Kid at this point. And it's more likely he'll repeat that behavior in the future. That's how he'll get attention. He'll shout out. And the kids with their hands up have learned not to put their hands up because they've just seen what the norm really is even though you said it wasn't. And the kids who never speak, the kids who are selectively mute or the chronically shy or whatever, you've just given them one less, one more reason not to participate. So you've normalized the behavior you didn't want to see. And what the teacher should have done to normalize the behavior that he or she does want to see is by, when Ryan starts out at 1066, you give a non-variable cue like putting your hand out and saying, I'm waiting for a hand up. I'm waiting for a hand up. Don't accept the answer. And then you keep saying, I'm waiting for a hand up. Jasmine sticks a hand up and you say, Jasmine, great hand up. Reinforce, reinforce, reinforce. Great hand up. What's the answer? 1066. Brilliant. Thank you so much for that. And great behavior. Ryan, I need to speak to you outside for a minute. And it's and it's just and the beautiful the beauty of this is is that all of that took exactly the same amount of time as you know, just accepting it. You know, you when you weave it into your conversation and, 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 and into your own actions. And for I mean, I I sometimes get people saying, "Yeah, but you know what? If Ryan never puts his hand up, you've just crushed his spirit. You know, he's never going to he's never going to learn anything again. He's going to he's going to join ISIS or something." And then, if you take Ryan outside, then and just say, "Look, Ryan, I love the fact that you answered the question, and also you got it right. That was brilliant. But you know what I need now? I need you to help me." Get everyone else involved because if everyone shouts out then nobody gets hurt, including you. And I don't want that. So what did you do wrong there? I shouted out. That's right. What can we do next time? No shout out. Brilliant. If you put your hand up, I promise you'll come to you eventually. How does that sound? Fantastic, Mr. Bennett. You're the best teacher in the world. Whatever. Okay, I'm fantasizing it. But you get the idea that you can normalize what you want in a very positive way. You can reprimand students in a really positive way. You know? But as long as kids know that there's a norm, they'll start to gravitate towards it. Now that doesn't work with everyone. But it works for a hell of a lot more kids than not doing it mm. or normalizing misbehaviour.
2: Mm.
1: That was like another ten dollar answer for a question that cost about buck It
0: was it was great. Well that means I'm getting a good return on my investment, yeah, so I'm happy with yeah, that. Yeah. <laughs> no, that's great. So to to recap some of your key points there, you know, to create establish those norms, you know, really explain explicitly what they are right at the outset Hold students to account when they don't behave in line with those norms, and in, to use that Doug Lemov phrase, "What you permit, you promote." Congratulate students when they do do it, and you know really acknowledge that, and then reteach where necessary. And that that links to one of my favorite quotes in your book, which is, "Ensuring good behavior in a classroom is an act of maintenance." I think that that is just really captures it so neatly and um, is something that I really didn't realize for a long time. And I think I'm still getting to, to realize, but it's, it's such an important point.
1: Mate, I'm still getting there, I promise you. One of the things that I derived from that is when you're trying to change behavior, what you're really trying to do is change habits of behavior, yes. right? Not yes. just trying to change behavior. I mean, I could, change, I could change someone's behavior by pulling out a gun and saying, dance, dance. You know, and you know, I'd certainly get the behavior I wanted, I'm sure. But I wouldn't have changed their habit. I wouldn't, you know, they wouldn't do that without me, without me and the gun. So you want to change children's habits, and habits take a long time to change, and it takes a lot of reinforcement to change a habit. You know, and, and, and this is why this is why the, the gym is full in January and empty in February. I, I sorry, I don't know if that tallies well with your holiday breaks and so on. But this is what tends to happen when people overindulge at Christmas. You know, gyms gyms got all the memberships in January, and they advertise over Christmas. But habits take a long time to accrue. And it's your job to help them accrue it, which means you've got you've also got to be the coach. You've got to spot them. You know, you've got to pick them up when they're not doing what they've you asked them to do. And if I wanted to teach you how to drive, and this is a, an analogy I use quite a lot, I mean, I could just give you the highway code and then show you me driving for five minutes and saying, right, now you go do it too. But that's not teaching someone how to drive, that's telling them how to drive, or or showing them once how to drive. If you want to change somebody's behavior, you got you can't just tell them to behave, you've got to teach them to behave. And teaching is a very different thing. And this led me to my, my next epiphany, which is that if you've got to teach people to behave, then behavior is a curriculum. And if behavior is like a series of packets of things to be taught, well, hang on, we know quite a lot of pedagogy, don't we? Because we're teachers, right? This is something we don't really normally, we don't normally map these two things together. Mm. Everything we know about teaching, you know, mathematics or literacy or, or sport or art, whatever, can also map onto teaching behaviour. So, I mean, there's there's one part of the book, for instance, where I I plug into something that's, you know, so hot right now you can you can barely touch it without gloves, which is Rosenstein's Principles of Instruction. Now, I mean I think these are fairly solid, pretty reputable, you know, guidelines and also they're practical as well, about, you know, some really good strategies for, for embedding learning. And I don't think they're irrefutable and I don't think that they are the last word in instruction, but they're not bad. And it's things like, you know, get students to revise their work, teach content. And once you've taught content, get children to do something with that content so you can see how well they're doing with it. And once you've seen how well they're doing with it, you you know, you correct common misconceptions. And once you've done that, you reteach the parts that weren't learned in the first place. And then you get to practice it again. And then you'd watch and then you'd respond. And then you get into to revise and, you know, all this kind of basic stuff. You know, forgive me if I'm going too fast. I don't think that's a very complex model of, of teaching, but it's not a bad one. I wish I'd, I wish I'd been told that my first year of teaching, as opposed to just, you know, good luck and have you tried some games. Now, if you apply that to behavior, you think about what you're teaching them. You get them to show you if they understood it or not, either verbally or physically. You correct them. You, you use role models in the classroom, you demonstrate it, you reteach, teach them, you create common misconceptions, you do it again and again and again. That's how you teach behavior. Because learning, learning one thing is very similar to learning other things. And I think behavior maps quite nicely and pedagogically onto that aspect.
0: 100%. I really love how you emphasized then, and, and you did emphasize in the book, the idea of habits and the idea that a norm is basically a habit when it continues for long enough. Yeah. And one crucial way that we can do this, which is one that you emphasize in the book, is to establish a set of routines which kind of instantiate many of the different behaviors and norms that we want students to have on an ongoing basis. So I was keen to open it up here and just say, what are three routines that you think most classrooms or potentially every classroom would really benefit from having established and for having teachers to put the time in that's required to maintain those routines?
1: Yeah, fine. I think routines and norms, obviously, are really closely linked. I tease them apart because I think it's useful to talk about them separately. But basically, a routine is a form of a norm. But the thing about norm is a norm can be fairly thematic. Like, you know, it's normal to be kind here. It's normal to work hard. It's normal to look after each other. It's normal to value mistakes if they can be then be used to correct ourselves and so on. But a routine tends to be something which is a lot more specific. It's a lot more it's a lot neater, a lot more concrete. And it's usually a sequence of behaviours. Do this, then do this, then do this. Like mirror, signal, manoeuvre, or how you make toast and so on. You know, how you do your tie. And these types of procedures are really useful to the, the classroom teacher because they're, they're usually easier to teach because they're much more explicit. You know, this is how I need you to get your books out. This is how I need you to format a piece of work. This is how I need you to respond when an adult walks into the classroom and so on. And kids love that. And Kids are really happy to know exactly what they should be doing if you show them what it is. You know, there's a lot more children who are really happy to get along with each other than you might think, or also to please the teacher or to, you know, or to, or to, or to get some esteem from the teacher. The three routines, I think, which, I mean, I don't, I, I don't want to say this is definitive, but this is the three most important, but three important ones are entry procedures, exit procedures, and transition procedures. I, I think that it's really hard to be a teacher and get along without these types of things being explicitly taught. So how do you want them to enter the classroom? Now, if you are a teacher in a high school or a secondary, that, you know, that might be throughout the day if you've got, you know, different classes coming into your classroom, who knows, so how they begin, because the beginning sets the tone for the rest of the lesson. So it doesn't really matter to me how you, how you want them to begin. This, this is the beauty of it. I'm not here trying to sell people, you know, the Tom Bennett classroom or the Tom Bennett school. I mean, maybe eventually. That'll be book five, once it's officially monetized. You know, every phrase which I've copied, I'm kidding.
0: I'm actually going to ask you to be specific and sketch a picture of what one really effective entry routine could look oh, yeah. like. I'd love for us to go into detail.
1: Uh, okay, look at you gathering me up quite right too. So it doesn't matter if you want them to queue up or not queue up. You know, it doesn't matter if you want them to come straight into class classroom or not. But, for example, a lot of schools have got, um, or a lot of classrooms have got the norm whereby you're supposed to wait outside the classroom and then come in. So you kind of get yourself ready and then you get started. I'm fine with that. I'm also fine with kids coming in if that's what the routine you want too, but you must systematise that as well. So let's say you want kids to wait outside. So you tell them that you want them to wait in a queue. You define for them what a queue means and you go into as much detail as you want or need with that. So, I mean, because a queue can mean lots of things. You get kids who are milling about and burning in motion, or you get kids who think that it's it's a rod of iron and that's fine. Or do you want them to be in pairs or twos or in a certain alphabetical order or whatever? Teach them what a cue is and show them once they're outside, right, I want you to correct yourself and this is how I want a queue to look like. Let's try that again. And then once they're out there, uh, you need to teach them how do you want them to dress? Do you have a uniform or do you don't have a uniform? Even if the school doesn't have a uniform code, there's probably a dress code of some type. You know, I, I presume, you know, that they have to have all their buttons done up and socks on feet and stuff like that. So, are, you know, are they tidy? Are they meeting the uniform standard you've asked them to do? And be really explicit about that. Again, don't let them guess. It's not a kindness to let them guess. It's an act of rudeness to do so because you're condemning them to to making mistakes. And then clarify for them what equipment expectations are when they're outside the classroom. Clarify for them what the noise, the volume, the behavioural expectations are outside the classroom. Can they chat? Can they not chat? Should they be gliding monkishly along with their hands in their cowls? Or or, or should they be singing the school song? Or should they be, you know... Making up poetry or, 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 or beatboxing with each other doesn't matter to me, but you've got to teach them what you want from them. Otherwise you'll apparently blow a nut at them for not doing what is in your head. And then do they enter as you say hello to them? Do you have an unnecessarily complex series of, of of handshakes with them? (laughs) Not these days, or we know, however it is, but you teach them the explicitness of the routine and it may take a few days to get used to it. But it's an investment in the future because you'll get a fast and snappy transition. And of course, what you want to do is teach them what to do when they get inside the classroom. Where does the bag go? Where does the jacket go? Do they go straight to the desk? Do they self-register? Do they get a book? Do they sit in circles? Do they sit in the carpet? Whatever. But you teach it explicitly. If you don't, you'll forever be correcting the behavior after the event. And the place I see this done best is typically in the early years context, the kindergarten context, you know, the preschool context. So you typically see people teaching kids, you know, five years old five years old and younger. And they're really good at this because they know this is what they have to do. Because kids don't know this stuff. Why should any kid know how to come into a classroom? You know, it's absurd to expect them to be able to do so. I mentioned in my book, The Curse of Expertise, the well-known psychological phenomena whereby if you're very good at something, it's very easy to forget how hard it is for people who aren't good at these types of things. And, and children aren't good at behaving necessarily. You know, and we are super behaviours. You know, we're, we're used to this. We're patient. We can, we can weigh our turn. We can share and all the rest of it. A lot of these kids can or don't know how to or struggle with it. And some kids, kids can do it really well. So we don't condemn them to not knowing. We teach them explicitly what it means to come into our classroom, how to sit in an assembly, how to go to a dining hall, how to queue up for a library book, because this will help them be participants in a community where they can all rub along happily with each other and enjoy the greater liberties afforded by people being equals in a community of equals.
0: Cool. Maybe one interesting way I could ask this is if you could picture, for example, a year eight class at a school that you've actually been to where you saw a really, really effective entry routine and, you know, this is just an example of an effective entry routine, but I would really love to boil it down to like, for example, one specific example of an amazing entry routine you've seen and exactly what the kids did. Could you paint a picture like that for us?
1: Yeah, I mean, I, I think I get what you're getting at here. I'm going to caveat this. I am very, very cautious about saying this is the way people should do And I know you're not asking that, uh, but I'd just be very cautious when people say, oh, well, you know, he's saying this is how it should be done. Mm-hmm. No, you know, I, I don't mind if kids tumble like acrobats into your classroom if, that, if that's what you're looking for. Mm-hmm. And also, a very well-executed classroom routine looks incredibly boring. Right? So one of the problems is, if you're a new teacher and you're going, to, you're going to observe a really experienced teacher who's had a class for several years, and you try to watch what they're doing for behavior management, you can sometimes be left quite perplexed because you're watching them thinking, they didn't do anything. They just asked the kids to do stuff and they did it. And a lot of the kids seem to know what to do. And you know, the kids just came in and sat down and they began quietly. But the problem is what you don't see is that that's all been built over months in the past. So a really good entry routine to begin a classroom. I mean, for example, and I know I'm going to get external on me for a second, even when I said that, is they wait outside, quietly, outside your classroom. They don't speak when you come to the door to enter, get them in. They're getting their uniform ready. They're checking, they've got their bags ready. They might have, for example, their homework planner in their hand. That was all we used to do, you know, homework planner in hand to show that you've got your homework planner. And then once the teacher gave them a nod, and literally it would just be a nod and there'd be a smile, the kids would, would file in smartly, but, but, but not too fast. And they would do so in silence. And they would take their seats in silence. And they would hang their jackets up on the pegs, they'd put their, put their, their bags down, they'd be working the board, they'd get their books out. They would get the requisite equipment from the side. Sometimes there might be a classroom monitor who was assigned to hand out the books for them. That that could be done on a carousel basis. And they would begin. And if they struggled with their work, they would put their hand up. And if they had a problem with the homework, then they would speak to the teacher at the beginning of the lesson while people were doing that. But the point is, there was a well-established understanding of what people had to do in the first two or three minutes. And when you get that right, you claw back so much time in your classroom. There was a really good of research done by the London School of Economics in 2015 where they suggested that on average a UK classroom lost about one hour per day to misbehaviour, an hour, which is a day per week Mm. or a year per cohort. I'm going to suggest our most disadvantaged children could probably do with an extra year's worth of education. Obviously, you'll never claw all that back. I mean, that's ideal world stuff. But you can claw a lot of it back. And most time I've seen lost in classrooms isn't due to barroom brawls, you know, and people throwing people through windows. It's normally down to slow transitions, late beginnings, messy endings, the, the kind of low-level disruption which is actually kryptonite to your lesson. That's the stuff the teacher can really meaningfully make a big impact on by inculcating these routines and norms, which systematizes behaviour and means that when they're thinking, "What should I do now?", they can just reach for this a porte, you know, off the peg, ready to wear behavioral pattern which they can relate to very easily make behaving easy you know don't make it hard
0: Mm. now once a teacher has decided what their entry routine is for example it may be what you've just described it may be as you said somersaulting into the classroom whatever it is how do they actually get their students to do that because the tempting thing is to say all right everyone i want us to all enter the classroom in an orderly fashion this is how i want you to do it so next lesson i want you to all do that okay And then obviously it doesn't happen at all. So how does it actually happen? Do you you need to practice it? If you need to practice it, how many times do you think you need to practice it? How free, like, do you need to do it first lesson, second, do you need to do every three weeks? What do you think?
1: Yeah, for sure. I mean, when you ask somebody to do something complicated, but you don't actually teach it to them, you just tell it to them. don't Don't be surprised if they can't do it. Would do it, are resistant to do it, or have forgotten to do it. So if I said to you, you know, remember the sequence of numbers, three point one four, one five, nine two six, five, three, five, eight, nine, seven. Which which I believe is pie to thirteen places, and that's as far as I can get. Although when I've had a few drinks, I can only remember a few more. I mean, not the right numbers, but I can just remember a few more. I mean, I, I was a very nerdy kid. I used to I used to memorize pie with my mates. That's how we got kudos, you know. It was a rough life in Glasgow. But if I said that to you know, people who haven't done that, you know, you I'd be very surprised if you'd remember past three point one four. Because it was just mentioned once. I mean, why should you be able to memorize that kind of complex sequence of numbers? So what you've got to do when you're teaching something is to teach it. So for instance, if you say, this is how I want you to, to line up, go and do the damn thing. You know, the, and repetition is, is, is one of the fundamentals of learning something. You know, if you, if you, whether you're conjugating a verb or trying to get a tricky guitar chord or remembering how to do a tennis swing or doing number bonds or something like that. Repetition, repetition. That's how we embed things. I mean, people often poo poo Drill. Drill is one of the drill is one of the fundamental axioms of learning. Yeah, you know, obviously it's not the be-all and end all of it, but it, but it's one of the building blocks of learning. You know, you practice over and over and over again. And if you've seen the Karate Kids, you'll know exactly what I mean. Wax on, wax off. But if you don't do that, the children don't, don't be surprised if they forget it. So take them outside, tell them what you want them to do, verbally quiz them, did you understand what I meant? Get them to do it, check their understanding. Reteach the bits that they didn't do well. Correct misconceptions. Get them to do it again. Say that wasn't bad, but now you know. Make it. You can. You can gamify it. Say, let's try that again, but in half the time. Boom! And get them to do it three or four times. Now, children will not thank you for getting them to line up three or four times. You know they will not think you're the teacher of the year. But I don't care. You'll be a better teacher for that because by front-loading the expectations and teaching it in a meaningful way, you made it easier for them to do it next time which means they can get into the classroom much quicker the next time with their uniform ready, with their equipment ready, in the right mindset, calm, a bit quieter, and so on, which will save you an enormous amount of time in the classroom. I hope the children can understand why that's important. It's not the be all and end of if they don't, but I would want them to because I think it's important because it's part of persuading them to, to value the behavior. And then crucially, you maintain that. But what you don't do is just tell them to do it. Just tell them to do it the next day and say, right, you know, someone tell me that big long number I told you, why didn't you get it right? You know, you kids, you never learn.
0: That's mm. because
1: of what not got in the first place.
0: Yeah. Where does this fit in? Because before you gave us your script for starting with a new class, and then you talked about how you'd probably go into some learning after that. When would you start to introduce an entry routine, for example, with a new class? Would it be lesson number two, lesson number one after the first yeah.
1: week? Yeah. I mean, I, I am a, huge advocate of, of front-loading it right to the beginning of the relationship with these children. Because the minute you start accepting the opposite of the behavioural norm you want to achieve, you're starting to teach children that's how you want them to behave. So if you just let them pile into the classroom willy-nilly and begin as they please, or begin when they're ready rather than when you're ready, you're teaching them that that's okay and it's much harder to pull it back from them. You know, it's, it's, it's the classic aphorism, isn't it? You know, don't smile until Christmas. Now, obviously, that's literally bullshit. But there's, but there's a germ of truth in it, which is to say that it's much harder to, to get kids back online once you've taught them bad habits. And so what I would suggest is that, in actual fact, if you can, try to teach them what your norms are before they've even met you. You know, so if you've got, I mean, if your school's like some kind of home communication system, if you've got parents evening, you've got a, a welcome to new kids assembly, or, you know, make these things explicit that there will be certain expectations, obviously not in detail. You might want to send stuff home to parents saying, hi, I'm really looking forward to to, to seeing, you know, little Billy, little Ryan, little Jasmine. This is what I'm going to need them to do. You could do that. It could be in the website. But it needs to start from the beginning. Now, what I used to normally do with my kids is is the very first time I met them, let's say I'd never had any contact with them before, I would get them into the class. I would stand them at the back of the room and I would find the tallest one and I would punch it. No, I wouldn't do that. Sorry, that's prison. Apologies. I always get that mixed up. I would get the kids to stand at the back of the, the classroom and I would and I would give them a seating plan. And then obviously they obviously they might bubble a little bit, they might be a little bit quiet, noisy, whatever. But I would say, listen, I need, you know, Ryan, you go here, Jasmine, you go here, Holly, you go here, and so on. And I would get them to all sit down, say, right, welcome to my classroom. I need everyone quiet, eyes on me, please. And normally with a new class, you tend to have a, a fractional honeymoon period.
2: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm.
1: While the kids are working out what the norms are of the classroom, what your boundaries are, what your expectations are. Are you the kind of teacher that lets them do what they want, or do they have to do what you want? That's 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 a pivotal mindset that kids get into. They they they're looking for that. They want to know. They want to know. Are you a grown up, or are you Coco the friendly teacher? You know, are you a big tall chum? And you know, I gotta say, they don't need another tall chum. What they need is an adult who cares about them and who cares about them enough to set some boundaries and expectations for them. And I probably most kids cleave to that.
2: Hmm.
0: Right. That's really interesting. So you'd probably half the time the kids would end up in the class anyway on the first lesson, just because there's no norms already. Then you'd actually line them up at the back. You'd give them a seating plan, which I assume you'd based upon discussion with teachers from previous years or something like that. Is that what you'd base that
1: on? Uh, Oh, yes. I mean, seating plans, I've got, uh, fun enough, in my follow-up book, Running the Room the Companion, which is coming in January, I've got a whole chapter on things like seating plans and so on. I would suggest that the beauty of a seating plan is it reminds children that while a classroom is a social space, it's not a socializing space. And that while you want them to be happy and have a nice time and be comfortable and relaxed, sometimes that means you assigning places for people. Because one of my favorite lines my room, my rules. You know, I care about you, so I'm going to have to run this room. I'm not going to let you run the room. You know, that's why I called the book Running the Room, because somebody has to be in charge, and that's the teacher. That's the adult. And I don't think we should be ashamed of that. I think we should embrace that. I think it's a wonderful thing, because when you don't do it, things get really dark and serious. And when you assign them seats, you're basically saying to them, I have control of this room, but you're doing it in a really nice, assertive, but non-aggressive way. You're not bawling them and saying, how dare you? These are my rules. You just say, I need you to sit there. I need you to sit there. If you say kids sit where you like, <laughs> you, know, you don't have to be a genius to know what's going to happen. You're going to get kids sitting with their pals, which means they're far more likely to chat about stuff which isn't anything to do with the lesson. Or... You might, get, you, know, you might just reinforce existing little gangs. In fact, I have worked in schools where there were gangs. So you certainly wouldn't want kids to, to, to sit themselves. You want to mix things up. You want kids to speak to people they would normally not speak to. You want to, you want to have time to broaden and diversify their social sphere by introducing it in an academic and a social sense. Okay. And then
0: um, I know I'm, I'm pushing you to be really specific, Tommy, but uh,
1: it's, <laughs> you're really drilling down into this, it's, aren't you?
0: It's, it's what I'm keen to hear, and I'm sure it's what a lot of well, I, listeners are keen
1: I to hear. I probably we to home. Go
0: on <laughs> so they're in this setting plan, you give them this initial spiel which says basically, here's who I am, I matter, I care about you, I really like my subject, I hope that you know you're going to as well, except much more eloquently as you did before. then do you go and say you know part of that is making sure that we behave in a way that's conducive to our learning and in really important part of that is making sure we retain as much time for teaching as possible and for that we need to enter in an orderly fashion then you start doing that intro practice then or do you where, where yeah, does that fit in
1: yeah just to stitch all these bits together then yeah <laughs> this <laughs> is like frankenstein you know, let, let, let's make the body here once i'd framed it you know this is why i'm doing it this is why i need you to behave and then here's how i want to behave and i would literally i mean i used to teach high school age kids so kind of 12 to 18 11 to 18 but this also worked with primary school kids you would spend the whole first hour or afternoon or day whatever you got with them, focusing on nothing but the behavioral norms and expectations for people who say oh that sounds a bit dry i mean everything can be dry i mean maths can be dry if you teach it dryly but if you teach it in a way which is you know which is focused on why it's important and the benefits that can accrue and and also i'm teaching it because you matter and i care about you and i want you to be safe i want us to have a, a, a calm classroom and i want everyone in this classroom to be treated with dignity because you matter And your learning matters to me. You know, most kids can go, all right, fair enough, that makes sense because it does make sense. So you then launch into it and you spend a hell of a lot of time on it. And you can get them to tell you what they think about it and you can get them to demonstrate it. And you can talk about examples and you can make a lesson out of it and so on. And and I know some schools like, uh, you know, the famous McKiela Community School in in London, which is, you know, a nightmare for some and a dream for others. But uh, they, they spend a week on this. But it's a hell of an investment because they then accrue the dividend of that investment over the rest of the relationship with those students. And I always say to the teachers, the investment you make at the beginning of the relationship will pay interest. But if you don't make that investment, you'll constantly be paying the same price over and over and over again. I once worked with a teacher who had been teaching for 27 years, He's a lovely guy, but he didn't invest any time whatsoever with his behavior management. He just could of shouted and railed at kids and he used to boot them out of the classroom all the time. And I remember thinking that he didn't have 27 years worth of experience. He had one year worth of experience times 27, which is all the difference. You know, it wasn't incremental. and It didn't accrue. And I hate to see teachers going through that process because that's how we lose teachers and also how we lose kids because children don't have the benefit of a classroom that's just safe and calm and dignified. And people don't think it's important to concentrate on behavior management. I invite them to try teaching in a difficult school. I invite them to see the waste that happens when kids' lives get, get you know, Get partially flushed down the toilet because they don't exist in safe camp spaces where everyone's treated with dignity. That that's what keeps me awake at night. That's what gets me writing. That's what gets me advocating. That's great.
0: So we've talked about one of the three important routines. I'm sure we can uh, work at what the third one looks like. It's the reverse of the first one, which is the the exit versus the entry. In terms of the transition routine, maybe we can jump straight to a, another specific example. So if you can picture another. Year eight or year nine class that you've seen, and you've seen a really clean kind of transition routine. Can you paint a picture of that for us?
1: A transition routine. Well, you know, if I can not use the year eight example because one of my favourites was a primary school, was like a junior school. Sure. So if I can sneak in with a year seven, maybe a year six.
0: There are lots of primary school teachers that listen, so primary is probably great as well. Feel free. I
1: find, the brother. Primary school teachers are just nicer people in general. So if you if you're out there, you know, I I know that you're nicer. Don't worry. I see you. One of, the, one of the most important things I found for primary school was, was getting the transition say, from a table activity to a carpet activity or vice versa. You know, I mean, one of the things that I, I'm constantly fascinated by children is the fact that they can take so long to do the simplest thing. And it's often intentional. It's often work avoidance. So uh, let's say you've got two kids and they've turned around and they're chatting to the people behind them. Then you say, right, everyone turn around and face, face to front because I need to discuss this now. It takes some kids a, a picosecond to do that. It takes some kids five minutes to do that successfully. And it's not because they don't know how to turn around. So a transition like that, or from the table to the carpet, it, it can it can detonate your classroom, it can obliterate your lesson, and dissolve the time that you have. So what you do is, you, so they can always sit down in the carpet. And you say, right, when I give a signal, now it could be a whistle, or it could be you know a clapped hand, or a finger on the lips, or a hand in the head, or you know ringing a little bell, or you could play a tune or something. See, that's the, that's the transition whistle, and that means back to the back to your desk. And this is what going back to your desk means. And you get into real detail with them. You say things like you stop your conversation at the end of that sentence, or if you want, boom, on the word. You immediately have your eyes back on me. You immediately gather up all the stuff that you're using. And then you immediately take that back to your desk and you see where the stuff goes. So if it's scissors, they go here. If it's paper, it goes there. Your pencil goes down. You're sat on your desk like this. You're facing this way. You're looking at this. I mean, you go into as much detail as you want. This is the beauty of it. You know, you don't, have to, you don't have to do the tracking thing. You don't have to do the star or the slant or all the rest of it. You know, you can, you can pick your own routines and details, which are age-appropriate. And then you say, right, let's try that now. So boom, they do it. And you say, that wasn't bad, but let's do that in half the time. Back on the floor. Boom, let's try it one more time. That's much better. Billy, what was wrong with what we did over there? Good. Can we try that again? Good. Boom, and you make a, You celebrate it. You make a success out of it. And every time you do they do it. You say, "Remember what we said last time." You go this, 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 this. Ryan, how do we do it again? That's great. Thank you, Jasmine. Could you improve that? Great. Let's do it. And once you've done that for a few days or a few weeks, you find yourself not having to say that anymore because it's been habituated. Uh, it's been internalized, and you then just have to kind of keep the ball on the table. But but if you don't do that, you'll you'll you doom yourself to constantly picking kids up for not doing it properly. Mm,
0: That's great. And what's the difference between that and and these routines we've been talking about and what you might do with, say, your year 12 class? You mentioned before teaching philosophy. Say you've got a year 12 philosophy class and you want to have them come in and start working efficiently and quickly. Would you still spend the first lesson with those year 12s teaching them to walk in and sit down and open their books? How how would it look differently for an older group of students?
1: Well, again, if I can use the metaphor of, of teaching, you teach according to where they already are. You teach according to their baseline. So, if you have got a kid that walks into your class and they don't know arithmetic, you don't teach them algebra. You teach them arithmetic. And they don't know arithmetic, then you teach them numeric recognition. You know, you, you know, you go back to the basic, the, the place where they need to start. So, if you got year twelves coming into your classroom, and these, you know, these guys have all got beards. You know, <laughs> they, you know, they they leave and they come back after summer. They've all got beards and miniskirts. and you find that a lot of them already know how to do the stuff you want them to do which is fine. But you might want to just lay down some really rough rail tracks, train tracks, and say, don't forget I need you on time. This is what being on time means. Don't forget I need you to bring equipment. This is the equipment they need to have. Don't forget that when you, get stuck, when you come into my classroom, there'll be a start on the board. This is how we start it. Right? So you start with that kind of basic stuff. This is where your homework goes. This is, you know, When I set a deadline, this is what I mean by a deadline. This is where I want your homework to go. If you're not going to make the deadline, this is when you need to come see me. This is how you ask, you know, you can still do a lot of the basic nuts and bolts stuff because it's different for a year 12 than from a year five. But you then also teach them the more complex stuff that they might need to know. This is how we structure an essay. This is how we conduct ourselves in a formal debate. This is how we make a point of order during a debate. You know, it's stuff like that.
2: Mm.
1: You know, this is how we access information. This is how we do independent work. You can still talk to them, but you base it on what they already know. Beautiful. Thank you.
0: <laughs> All right, so that's that's routines. I'd love to talk a little bit about scripts now. And and I'd love for this to be kind of rapid fire. You talked about the importance of scripts in the book, and if I try to kind of summarize what I took from that, it's there will be times when we need to be kind of reactive. Sometimes we can use scripts proactively, but also there will be times in the classroom where maybe a student makes a joke about another student says something inappropriate, calls out, things like that. And in those instances, it's really helpful if a teacher can kind of have a script or a template that they know is going to be an effective reaction to that context and they can modify it accordingly. So I'd love to run through a few scripts with you here, just in a kind of rapid fire kind of approach to hear what you.
1: The, should I do accents or should I just, you know, stick to.
0: Oh, well, you know, you can do however you want, Tom, <laughs> but I'd, I'd love to hear the master of this and extract from you some of the, uh, the scripts that you would use in the class. And we can go through a few con- through examples and you might be able to come up with some examples yourself. So, we kind of had that example of, of Ryan calling out before. So let's just go over that one again. And you can ask the question. I'll call out and say 1066 and we'll see what you, you say.
1: OK, Oliver, when was the Battle of Hastings? 1066, sir. Waiting for a hand up now. 1066. Anyone got a hand up? Hand up? 1066. Jasmine? Thank you. Thank you very much. Jasmine was the answer. That's great. Thank you very much. Thank you. All you need to see outside now. You know, or <laughs> whenever. The thing is, you deal with it when you're ready, not when they're ready. You compl- you know, you, and I would blank a kid who was shouting out.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: I would only respond when I absolutely had to. Mm-hmm. So if they shouted something racist, yeah, you know, that that would be a okay. Hang on, whoa, stop the class. Right? Okay, that ain't happening because that's that's more than a misdemeanor.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, or if they were screaming it, you know, or or, or if they, you know they were sh- throwing a pen at somebody while they did it, that's that's something I think I'd then be tackled. But you but you starve them of the oxygen of attention which is what they're looking for and then you give them attention later on for doing the right thing that's Mm. that's one of the most okay go sorry that was one that's great well let's let's go to that
0: one you just talked about then imagine a student you know i don't know you might be reading a text or watching a movie or something and there's some characterization of some race within the text and a student within the classroom says oh that's like haha that's like johnny or whatever that person's just like Johnny or whatever. And it's just, there's a racist tinge to it or something. And it's pretty clear, but it's it's a little bit hidden, but everyone kind of knows where the kid's going with it. How would you react? What would you say as a teacher?
1: Oh, I, Well, there's a great line from Get Shorty. If you know the, the I think it's the Elmore Leonard book, or Chili Palmer, the character uh, says, I'm going to say as little as possible if that. I'm going to say as little as possible if that, that always stuck with me. And it's this idea that you, you know, you react proportionately. So. It's no good at that point screaming the house down. But what I would do, I would stop the film. You know, I, you know, if, if if everybody had heard that, I would stop the film because you got to then respond equally publicly, and I would say, "Leave the classroom now." And you and you would hopefully have some kind of removal routine, some kind of maybe a parking routine, and you just say that language is unacceptable. You can't teach like that. This is serious. You need to leave the classroom. But sir, but sir, you need to leave the classroom. And then you would start the film, restart the film. You know, but what you wouldn't do is. I wouldn't then go into a 45-minute discussion about racism in the middle of class because these kids need the education of what's going on. It's sufficient for them to see that you responded seriously to it and that you then deal with the student's attitude afterwards. They may not have understood the ramifications of what they've said, in which case then you can have a more collegiate conversation about, look, I don't believe you meant that, but here's how it came across and here's the impact it actually has on people. This is the damage it causes and this is how you normalise racism, you know, that kind of thing. And you know, most kids will kind of go, I didn't realize that, I didn't know. Right, I don't want to hear that again. Or they might think, oh, nothing wrong with saying that. And you say, listen, I can't change your mind on that. I'll try, I'll persuade you. And you might give some demonstrations and examples and you know, so on. But I can insist you don't say that again. I can't change what goes on in your head, but I can insist upon your behavior. And I know that you want to do well. And I know that you care about other people normally, so let's try and remember how to care about other people. And try to value map onto something they might actually agree with. Because you yeah. Sometimes you are actually dealing with you know somebody who is you know racist in their heart as well. But kids can learn that, and they can learn it too. And I think you need to be a, you need to be a role model of that too. But but that begins with clamping down on in public, but in a way that disrupts the class as little as possible. But sometimes you sometimes you can't avoid the disruption, you know. And that's why I, I, t- I try and avoid my like horse and cart behavior management. You know, don't let them lead you. Respond when you're ready. Otherwise, your class flow will be detonated. Which is serious, you know, because you can lose a lot of lesson time to constantly correcting people's behavior. Because if you can save it up till when you're ready, that's really helpful. If someone's got a mobile phone out in the classroom and they're tip tap tipping away, but nobody else has seen it, just you, then you could probably stop the class, confiscate, have a big stand-up row, Or you could finish your behavioral instruction to the rest of the class, get 29 other kids working, and then when you're ready, when they're working, you say, Ryan, sorry, Ryan, it's all Ryan, Ryan. Step outside, please. Or Ryan, give me the phone now, please. But sir, but sir. I need it now. And if they want to make a deal of it, then you know you escalate. But the point is, you've made an intelligent decision about how to strategically use your time because you've only got a finite amount of focus, time, and effort.
0: Mm. So what if the teacher does ask the, that student to leave, but then you know, something that I've seen quite frequently is that student will say, oh, come on, sir, it's just a joke. I don't need to leave, So it's just a joke. I was just having a joke. Where, yeah. where do you go to from there?
1: a couple of things once the teachers made a decision to ask a student to leave a classroom one thing they cannot do at this point now is back down if you if you think somebody needs to leave and you say it you've got to follow up with that. otherwise the kids will know that they can they can push back on you and get you to change your mind just because they push back on you so what you're doing there and again this is all about habituation you're habituating the children to to expect that you will give up and what they really need from an adult I guess in any field, but I mean, but, but particularly in the classroom, is they need to know that you that you mean what you say, and you always do what you say you're going to do. Which means once the decision's been made, you got to stick to it. So that kid has got to leave. You got to so you'll use something along the lines of I've asked you to leave. That needs to happen now. We can discuss this later. I'm not discussing this. Now. I'm not discussing this now. And if they start to kick up and fuss and shout and ball, to be honest, you know they they they've just added secondary misdemeanors to, to their charge sheet. You know, so they've said something which is potentially deeply offensive and deeply racist or something in addition to that they are displaying or demonstrating that they are unable to process standard procedures which hopefully you've pre-baked into their expectations by discussing with them with them in advance you know if you've said to the class you say something offensive i will ask you to leave and we'll discuss it later and then that happens the class you be expecting you to ask someone to leave and it's particularly apposite that you do otherwise people will think ah oh, he or she doesn't mean what he or she says so you know it's, it's all about expectations it's all about sincerity if you want to be I mean one of the ways in which we treat one another with dignity and with authenticity is by being sincere with one another if you say something rude I will do this and the kids are hoping you will and when you do they believe in you if you don't they believe in you a little bit less because you've shown yourself to be kind of Diaphanous or crepuscular—two of my favorite words. Can you explain what those those two words are? Because I don't know. <laughs> how... <laughs> Sorry.
0: No, I love I love words. I love learning new words, so to, to explain
1: No, di- diaphanous just means like gossamer, thin, like you know, almost insubstantial. And crepuscular means uh, it's the, it's the, it's, it's, that's probably my favorite word in the world. It's the word given to the light at twilight. So when you know when you can't quite see things, when things, you know when you're not sure what something is. You can you know, you you can say it's crepuscular, it's vague, it's ambiguous. And it's got all, all other kinds of connotations, but yeah, crepuscular is just such a great adjective. I recommend everyone use it from now on.
0: There you go. I knew that corpuscles originally we talked about I think light as
1: traveling in corpuscles, so. yeah, yeah, that's right. People pack it, yeah, 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 little packets. So there this you go, crepuscular as opposed to corpuscular. But who knows what the puzzle is? So, okay, fair enough. I'll, I'll leave that to my more linguistically literate colleague.
0: There so. you go, a little bit of extraneous load yeah, that's for really <laughs> love. What about what about if a student makes a sexist th- remark directed at the teacher would you suggest the teacher behaves in any different way there or is there a particular line that you know is very quite effective in such a scenario
1: Yeah absolutely I mean there's I mean there's loads of ways to go with this I'm going to suggest there's lots of factors which could be at play here You know you get lots of kids who are just they're too dumb to realize they've said something awful and there are lots of kids who will do it deliberately and there are lots of kids who think it's just funny, and they need to they need to be retaught. And there are lots of kids who are using it as a weapon to to insult or demean a female, or, or indeed a male teacher, I guess. And you know, go it can work both ways, but you know, sadly, mostly towards women against women. And I would say I would just I would play it straight. I would I would just play you know the straight wicket there and just say you got to leave this classroom now. We don't use language like that. I need to discuss this with you. I mean we need to work we need to work at what's going to happen next now. You know, and then once that person's been removed. If it's something as serious as, you know, a grossly misogynistic phrase or a grossly racist phrase, you want to then have a a quick debrief with the class. You've got to have what I would call a threshold moment to honor the fact that something serious has just happened. Otherwise, if you just glaze over it, because we'll go, oh, that didn't matter that much. It's, It's one of those times where I would recommend that you do interrupt the lesson to discuss and think about behavior. I mean, overtly, explicitly, because sometimes with behavior, you can tactically ignore some behaviors in order to deal with them later. Notice tactically ignoring doesn't mean ignoring, it just means I'll deal with that in a minute when I'm ready, rather than when they're ready. But there are some circumstances that you know it's, it's like pressing an alarm button, boo, we gotta talk about this. So you might wanna just say, that was wrong, we don't talk about this.
0: So what kind of a script would you use in that for that threshold conversation
1: with the class? What, what would you say in that kind of context? Yeah, well it's, it's interesting because one of the things that weird enough is you're often your enemy in effective communication. Is, is, is when you leak too much emotional kind of baggage, you know, for, so if somebody makes a sexist or racist comment, you want to show that it's incredibly serious, but they might be using it to get a reaction from you. So don't give them it too much. Just say, you've got to leave that. You know, this is serious, but you've got to leave. So you talk assertively rather than aggressively. I mean, you can sound really disappointed and you might want to give them, you might want to tear a strip off them afterwards at the end of the day in private or with, you know, with their, their pastoral manager or with their form tutor or something. But in the classroom, just you know, remember there's 25 other kids there that also deserve an education. So it's a, it's a balancing act here. And then when you have the script of the class afterwards, you come back in and you say to the class, listen, I don't want to lose too much of your learning time, but what just happened is serious. I need to discuss this. And you can clarify and reinforce your expectations of what you've already said, or perhaps what you haven't said enough, which is in this classroom, we treat each other with dignity. In this classroom, we respect everyone, regardless of ethnicity, uh, sexuality, gender, whatever. And we just saw an example there where that didn't happen. And I never want to hear language like X, Y, and Z again. And I don't want to discuss it right now because, quite frankly, I'm so disappointed that I heard that. Now, let's move on.
0: Dear listeners, as per usual, all ERRR patrons will receive my summary of this month's episode with Tom Bennett. I think this month's summary is particularly valuable because I've taken the time to sit down and write out verbatim some of the scripts that Tom has offered within this episode. This includes exactly what Tom would say in his first lesson with a new class and some of the lines he uses for behavior management. It also includes my key takeaways from this discussion. As mentioned last month, patrons who sign up before October 20th will also receive an extra benefit. A special gift to say thank you for your support of the ERRR podcast and my work to deconstruct and communicate education research over the past four or so years. Anyone who is a patron of the ERRR podcast... By October 20th, 2020, we'll receive a unique code to get 50% off my forthcoming book, Cognitive Load Theory in Action. Further, all patrons that support the podcast with the average monthly donation of $5 US per month will receive a code for 100% off Cognitive Load Theory in Action. That's right, a free copy of my forthcoming book with the only payment required being for postage. My aim in writing this book was to allow any teacher who reads it to quickly grasp the key ideas of the theory, as well as see practical implications for their own classroom. I wrote it under the close guidance of Professor John Sweller, the creator of Cognitive Load Theory, and John has generously read and provided feedback on every single word to ensure that the final book, as it stands, is both a practical guide for teachers and as clear a representation as possible without losing any of the true accuracy or nuance of the theory. So if you've been thinking about supporting the ERRR podcast through Patreon for a while and you just haven't quite taken the plunges yet, now is a fantastic time to take that step. As mentioned, the cutoff date to access this special deal is October 20th. So go to patreon.com forward slash ERRR to sign up to support the show and take advantage of the opportunity for a 50 or that 100% discount of cognitive load theory in action. Now we'll jump back into this episode of the ERRR podcast with Tom Bennett.
1: If you've got loads of capacity in the classroom to make a discussion about it, let's say you finish the lesson five minutes early, then yeah, you might want to pick it up again. Because the class might want to say, oh, sorry, he said he was just having a piece of banter. And I said, well, that's something I need to, and then you can have the discussion with the class. Well, I need to discuss that with them to understand what he, what words he actually said and what his intent, where it was. But people listening to that person doesn't know what the words mean, doesn't know what the intent is other than what they process it as. So, if someone's calls somebody, you know, a bitch or something like that, then they might think it means one thing, but to somebody else, it means another. And you've always got to be thinking, how do my words sound like to another person? How does it make them feel? And how does it make them regard our relationship? And that's where you can really unpack it a little bit. So, I do think those types of conversations are valuable as long as you kind of punctuate them around the learning you're trying to achieve in the lesson as well. You know, because I, I guess there's another danger, which is that you, you you stop the entire lesson and have a forty five minute lesson on appropriate language, which which is great. But you know perhaps it needs to be factored into your pastoral time a bit more than just uh, taking away from all the the curricular time too. There's a balancing act to be had, I think. Yeah, that's great, Tom.
0: What about something that's probably relevant to a lot of teachers at the moment? Students online learning online, and particularly even rocking up late for an online class, or even just rocking up late for a normal class what's a good reaction when the students turn up late?
1: That's that's a really interesting one because, you know, I've been doing a lot of online teaching just like you. Um, and I've been working with a lot of other educators to to think about kind of best practice in this area because as you know, as we all know, the the extraordinary time, the whole world has been through an enormous experiment in, in distance learning. And I think Paul Kirshner said it well in one of his research at home sessions where he said that this isn't this isn't distance learning, this is emergency learning. You know, the, the, this is this is uh, schools pulling rabbits out of hats and and moving mountains and performing miracles in many situations, but you know, but this was not best case scenario. This wasn't, you know, this wasn't a startup edtech firm creating an online learning platform for adult applicants who were super keen and super motivated and they had twelve months to plan it and six months to beat a test. it. you know, this was boom. You get three weeks, put your entire courses online. So there are a couple of things I need to say here. Which number one, which is that. We gotta respect the fact that people are doing the, the best they can, that people are dealing with circumstances which are so far from optimal that, you know, you have to say the word backwards to get a better sense of what it is. You've got families who have got home situations which are totally unsuitable for people doing distance learning. You know, loads of loads of family members, people living multiple multiple people living in the same room, and uh, non-availability of quiet space, people working from home, people not working. It's just, you know. You cannot assume the same kind of paradigm that you have in a school because in a school, you've got you know, close to best case scenario. You know, you've got dedicated learning spaces. You've got trained professionals. Everybody has dedicated time, effort, and space in their lives to make this learning happen. You know it's, it's, it's as good as it can be with obviously you know, caveats that we can always do better. But in this circumstance, it is we need to make a lot more leeway for one another. I think we need to be kind to each other. You know, if a student is late to a webinar, then we need to be much more mindful of their personal circumstances before we start tearing a few strips off them. Okay, mm-hmm. so that's, that's part A of what I wanted to say. Part B is that if you want to run effective, structured online learning sessions, it's important to set up some basic ground rules. It's important to set up exactly what you would do with a normal classroom, which is to say, these are my expectations. These are the norms. These are the behavioral conduct norms which I need to see in order for you to do well here. And not just you, but everyone else, because your conduct will affect other people's conduct. Now, in a classroom, what tends to happen is if somebody misbehaves, that then ripples and affects everyone else. And it's normally quite immediate because of proximity and sound and social relationships and so on. You know, being face to face is a big deal. Online, if somebody, <laughs> if somebody starts talking about, you know, it's much easier for the educator to go, well, mute video, you know, or, or block or whatever, you know, it's exclusion is, 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 is much more easily achieved. But the question is you want to try and avoid that. Not the question, but the point is you want to try and avoid that. So what you do is you preload the students with, with the expectations and also trying to ha- reach out to students and guardians and people who of course manage this the student situation to say, look, please come have a have a quiet space. If it's possible, please, can you support them in this? Please can you make sure siblings aren't in the room? Because if you don't do that, then people think anything goes, and it's and it's very much like a normal classroom. It's it's really good to make your expectations clear. So there's a balancing act to be had here. And once the teacher has to some extent assessed where the students are coming from in terms of the circumstances and availability and so on, then they can start to make baseline reference judgment calls as to whether or not their behaviour is acceptable. So like I said, I still think we're in that period where we need to be really kind to each other. We need to be we need to cut each other a hell of a lot of slack. Hmm. So
0: I mean, that raises an interesting question for me. Does that mean that we're we're not being kind in the standard classroom? You know, does that mean maybe there's a little bit more leeway that we should be cutting cutting students normally? Like what why is it different in the online context versus versus at school?
1: Oh yeah. I mean, I've I one of the things I frequently say when I talk about routines and norms. Is that the bedrock of routines and norms is consistency. And the higher the consistency, the better. Having said that, there's also, uh, there, there, there are exceptions to every rule. And any rules which don't permit exceptions are normally unkind, cruel, and unjust. So, for example, murder, as I've mentioned before, is, is generally frowned upon. I don't know what it's like in Melbourne, but you know, we, you know it's, it's normally thought it as a bad thing. However, we make exceptions for, you know, self-defense, acts of war. Mental instability and so on. You know, we we, we, we can amend our, our our judgment upon such matters based on circumstances. So every rule has an exception, and then a school, even the highest of standards, can have exceptions. So, if, for instance, if somebody comes in and says they don't bring in they didn't bring in their homework, and you say, "Well, why was that?" And you say, "Well, you know, I got hit by a bus or something." You know, you you make an exception, and obviously that's an extreme case, but it just but it proves the point that you know that that, that there are. Going to be situations where you will make an exception to a rule in a circumstance, and the question is where will you draw the line? And my point I tend to make is that the problem for many schools is they tend to draw the line far too far, far too high or far too low. I don't know how where this metaphor goes. leniently, but they're far too lenient. Yeah, so, you know, a kid will say, Oh, you know, I ran out of time last night, and the teacher will say, Oh, that's fine, just hand it in tomorrow. You know, for me, that's too lenient, unless there's a really, really good reason why it didn't happen, it's the house burned down or something, because you encourage children. To take any setback as an excuse for not doing what they should be doing. Whereas you want to try to help children to get better, to get stronger, to realize that even if they've not got much time, they should still do their best to make things happen. So that's one thing. So we do make exceptions in school, and not just exceptions, we make, you know, we make accommodations for students with exceptional circumstances, as long as exceptions are exceptional and as long as they're logical and coherent with one another. So a student with Tourette's syndrome, for example, doesn't get sanctioned for swearing because that would be absurd. You know, that would be utterly unjust. And I've taught students with Tourette's. A student who is paraplegic, you know, doesn't, <laughs> doesn't get penalised for not, you know, competing in able-bodied athletics. I mean, you know, again, another absurdity. We, of course, make exceptions. We also make exceptions for students with mental health issues or even less visible issues. Circumstances involving trauma and bullying or abuse or something else like that. And it's not always circumstances we can share with the other children, but we make accommodations for these types of things. And rightly so. Otherwise, our rules would be unjust. So we so we already have that baked into a good school, and incidentally, some schools are very bad at making this call. You know, they they're either too lenient or not lenient enough. And you know, it's it's there's it's like a, it's it's like gold locks and three bears. The porridge has to be just right. But I would suggest that in in an emergency circumstance like COVID, we have to be far more careful that we're not making assumptions about children's ability to, for instance, get to a computer or get to a laptop or whatnot. Which is why I sometimes find asynchronous learning to be a much more useful device to blend perhaps with a little bit of synchronous learning. Because in those types of circumstances, you're then giving children the ability to do work at their own rate and pace at some point within the day, rather than saying you've got to be available nine to five. And also, you know, we know that asynchronous with a little bit of synchronous is probably one of the, the kind of optimal solutions in terms of school capacity and teacher capacity, but also in terms of the ability of children to meet the needs that the teachers, the challenges that the teachers are setting. So, I mean, leniency is something which is always a useful thing to be able to use. But, of course, leniency depends on circumstances. And the circumstances right now are, are extraordinary for many students. But once the teacher has assessed if students can get to computers and they don't have other things going on in their lives, then I think they've got every right to say, right, I need you sat there. I need you not shouting out. I need you talking one at a time. If you want to put your hand up, then you put your hand up on Zoom. You know, the, I mean, the facility, I don't just be literally put your hand up. And I say that but as somebody who recently attended a, a reasonably important meeting at the Department of Education, and they said, can you put your hand up to ask a question? And I literally put my hand up. And they said, no, Tom, there's a button for it. I said, oh, right, sorry. So yeah, so I've rambled a bit, but, that, but those are my feelings. Got it. Thanks, Tom. That makes a lot of sense.
0: What makes a good detention?
1: Well, you know, breaking some rocks is, is pretty good. All right. A detention is one of the most commonly used deterrents in in the in the secondary system and sometimes in 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 the primary or the junior system deterrents are useful behavior modifiers as are rewards but they're not the answer to everything you know you can't punish someone into being good. and you know things like deterrents and and disincentives and incentives and rewards and so on they're kind of the basis of the entire field of economics and i think the reason why some people get upset by sanctions in general is because they think that people are using them to try and solve everything. And to be fair, some schools do. You know, their only behavior management system is essentially putting somebody in detention or, or setting punishments. They do work to some extent, but they work with some people and in some context. And they work with some people more than others. So sanction I mean, sanctions work mostly with children who are already quite compliant. <laughs> you know, they have the biggest effect on those children. And they have the least effect on the children who are the least compliant, which is, you know, really ironic and kind of sucks. But the good news is that the sanctions have some effect on most people. You know, there's a big bubble in the middle that there's, there's some effect on And the, the effect that, that sanctions have on people in general is to deter. That's it. it, it it's just a deterrent. It's a, a kind of an operant conditioning. It's, a, it's a, you know, a behaviourist principle. The idea that you attach a negative consequence to an undesired behaviour in the hope that it will deter that behaviour in the future. I mean, you know, the, the, the rationale is pretty simple and, to be honest, you know, we see it in action all the time. People, people tend to be deterred by things that lead to unpleasant consequences. You know, I hope I don't have to justify that, but, you know, but there's there's a wealth of evidence to suggest that, that this, is, this is the case. However, we do know that some people aren't particularly deterred. For instance, children who lack the imagination to link the action to the behaviour. Or younger children sometimes aren't particularly deterred by negative consequences if they can't link the two things together. So there's lots of reasons why, you know, sometimes sanctions don't have much of an effect. but if you are going to sanction somebody and you're going to use a the detention, then the detention has to be a sanction. It can't be, it can't be a fun experience. <laughs> you know, there has to be some aspect of what the student thinks, "Man, this sucks. I don't want to come here again." Which means that if you want to have a nice pastoral chat to the student about what's going on in their head, and if you want to, you know, maybe unpick some things going on in their lives, are you, or even you want to just like try and reteach something from the lesson? You've got to be careful not to mix that up with the detention. If you want a deterrent effect, have a deterrent, which means you know, get them sitting quietly for ten minutes, or get them doing some extra work for half an hour, you know, or or getting them missing some break time with their friends for five minutes. You know, as as your countryman Bill Rogers famously and fabulously says, the, the 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 severity of the sanction is far less important than the than the certainty of the sanction. The severity, you know, is not the factor we're looking forward. We're just looking for certainty of sanction. So make sure they're doing something which, you know, they're thinking, man, this sucks. I don't want to be here. Don't give them things to do that they enjoy. You know, don't let them. I mean, I've seen some schools that they can, kids can go on their phones in a detention, which is basically just saying, sit over there and play with your phone. I've seen some kids, you know, being asked to, you know, they're allowed to put their heads in the desk and have a nap. You know, it's got to be something where they're just thinking, no, no way, not again. Once that's finished. Then you have your threshold conversation, a pastoral conversation, a restorative conversation. Then you see, right, what's going on here? Or why did you act like that? Are there better ways we could think about this? You know, how could you have reacted? You know, how did that make somebody feel? You know, how's that impacting your learning? And crucially, when you finish the detention, you must have one of these conversations because the student needs to feel like they want me in the class. They want me to do better. I can do better. I know how to do better. And that's got to be in the conversation. That conversation could take a minute. Or your pastoral conversation could be 20 minutes, a half an hour or longer, depending on the severity. But you've got to have that threshold. Otherwise, the kid leaves that detention with a narrative of, they punished me. Now, some kids will walk away feeling ashamed of themselves. Oh, I won't do that again. Some kids will think, I'm not ashamed, but I won't do that again because I don't want to get the punishment. And some kids will walk away thinking, they hate me. You know, because I'm basically a good person, and if they do something nasty to me, through the beautiful process of cognitive dissonance, and you know, adds, and, and post hoc rationalization, we're all the heroes in our own stories. And that child leaves with a narrative of, you know, these teachers hate me, man. I'm going to get them back. So you haven't changed that student's behavior dial at all. But with a threshold conversation, you've got the chance to 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 move the dial in that narrative. You've got the chance to change the narrative and say, look. What we did was wrong, and this is why. Here's how you can do better, and we want you to do well. That's a different story to leave them with. It's a very powerful story, and it's a very real story, and it should be real because it should be what we want rather than just you've been punished. Now you've learned your lesson. That's not how people learn lessons. They learn to avoid you, they learn not to get caught. And that's not what we're trying to teach in classes. We're trying to teach people not to misbehave because we're trying to teach them how to behave. And, and the sanction can be part of that by acting as a mild deterrent. And deterrents are short-term behavior modifiers. You know, deterrents, they, 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 you know sanctions tend not to change people's personality. No, nobody ever sat in a, in a detention and thought to themselves, my God, what have I done with my life? You know, like Jean Valjean from Les Miserables. You know, th- th- this isn't how people think. They just kind of think, man, this sucks. So detentions are fine as short-term behavior modifiers, but you can't change people permanently. Without using lots of other things which wrap around the detention,
0: that's good. And I think that I mean that the idea of the threshold conversation, I think, is so important. And I must say, it's not something that I've that I've done enough of. I'm starting to realise through through this through reading your book and through having this conversation with you now, Tom. So I'm really grateful for that. If you introduced me to that idea. One thing that did surprise me in your book was that you said students shouldn't be doing homework in detention. And to me, that seems like a very natural consequence. And I've used that. For years now, you know, students, you haven't done your homework, okay, I'm going to keep you in at lunchtime, you're going to do your homework then. What's what's wrong with that?
1: Ah, well, this, well this, this is entirely different because then you're asked, that's an entirely different act on behalf of the teacher. That's not the detention. Okay, let me clarify. I'll let, let, let me rewind slightly here. I mean, I guess you could say any any circumstance in which you detain a student is a detention. Any So... so you know, but more broadly speaking, you could use the terminology to refer to you know I need a quick chat with you about something brilliant you did. You know, if you say to a student, "I want to talk about a brilliant piece of work you did," that's a detention. But well, let's get past that. I'm talking about detentions as sanctions. So that's so that's one one way of detaining a student and having a detention. You could also say to a student, "You haven't finished your work in class. You got to stay behind and do you to stay behind and do it." And that's another thing. That's another strategy. That's another consequence you could use or a student's misbehaviour. And I would I would say that's a different thing than a purely sanction-based response, which is, you know, I'm punishing you to deter you in future. Having said that, holding a child back to finish off their their, their work after a lesson, you know, could easily be called a form of it, There's a sanction element to it as well, but I'm just saying it's, it's, it's subtly different from that. I mean, the student probably wouldn't see it as particularly different. But if you're just going to sanction a kid, Let's say they they were rude to you, you know. Let's let let us say they threw a pencil on it in a class, and you kept them behind at the end of the day as a as a punishment. I wouldn't let them do their homework in that kind of circumstance because what you're doing is providing a benefit to them. Here's a quiet space where you can get on with that work that you need to be doing anyway. They should be, be, you could. I I would suggest they could do some different work. I would suggest that they could be writing a letter, explaining what they've done wrong and what you know they could you know here's a reflection document please fill this out they could do that they could sit quietly they could write out the school rules you know it's, it's i mean i, I know it, that sounds very old school but it's meant to be mildly unpleasant and i don't i don't think we should shy away from that the school rules is going to be quite unpleasant and then you say to them and you still have to finish your homework <laughs> you know? so that's a different thing because you know because you already have to do that i mean i'm not i'm not going to make it easier for you just because you must class. that would seem that would seem odd if i am yeah, that
0: makes sense. That's a good clarification. Thanks for that, Tom. Now, one of the big themes in this interview has been the importance of the teacher being consistent and keeping up that standard. And, and sometimes that can be a really, really hard thing to do. And sometimes, you know, you've had a, it's been a long week and it's Friday afternoon, the kids are playing up and you know, you should be putting them in line, but you, you know, the, the, it's the hour or the minute hands going near, up to the 12 and, you know, you know, it's going to be easier just to let it go. Basically, what advice do you have for people like on the individual level to keep that and then also on an organizational level to try to keep those standards where they need to be?
1: I'm going to push this back to front. I'm going to start with the organizational thing because that's, that's a terrific point. One of the biggest mistakes we make as teachers is assuming that all children know how to behave. Yeah, because, because, because that just exacerbates the disadvantage gap. You know, we've got to teach the behaviours, we've got to teach the habits we want to see to help them to flourish. Okay, well, that principle works equally well with staff. One of the biggest mistakes we make as organisations and as, as educational institutions is we hire a member of staff to be, you know, an English teacher, or a third grade teacher, or whatever, and then assume that they are shop floor ready. When in actual fact, their initial teacher training may very well have been thin. They may not, they may not be ready, they might not be good at behaviour management, whatever. There might be gaps, often there are, and in those circumstances, the school has, or the organization has a responsibility to make sure that teacher is trained to teach behavior to children. So this is now getting a bit meta. You know, the teacher must be a teacher of behavior to the child who has to learn behavior. And the school or the educational institution has to be, has to know how to teach teachers to teach behavior. So we're, you know, so now we're getting very kind of, uh, you know, very groovy here because we're getting very meta. And that's one of the best ways in which you achieve consistency. By doing so at an institutional level by having structures in place where not only are our clear procedures taught systematically to new members of staff you know there's a training program that everybody has to get so that's a start because at least then you achieve consistency between members of staff but the thing which i mean that's hard enough i mean it's, it's rare enough to see a school that gets that right if i may say what's harder still is seeing an institution which knows how to maintain these systems. And one of the reasons why you get this, if I may say so, is that I'm not quite so sure how the situation is in Australia, but in the UK, you can get into quite senior leadership without having much systematic training in being a manager, you know, managing a system. Everybody wants to be a leader. Nobody wants to be a manager. Leadership's cool. You know, leadership, leadership is, is bristling and with glory. You know, I'll follow me, I'll take you to the promised land. Everyone wants to be Moses. You know, but nobody wants to work out, you know, how to put beans on the table. Nobody, nobody wants to work out how to keep the system running, just because it's not glamorous, because it's not sexy, and but people. And and but we need that, and I think we need a hell of a lot more management than leadership in schools sometimes, and for people to acknowledge gaps in their administrative and bureaucratic abilities. And you can't outsource that to everybody. You know, you gotta you gotta be good at it yourself. So that's that's point number one, and schools need to be, you know, checking in on their staff every once in a while and saying right. Are you still following procedures? Are we rebooting our expectations with you on at least an annual basis? Are we reteaching you the systems that we want, particularly when they change, but even when they don't? Are we re-embedding it? Are we teaching our staff how to behave as well as teaching the children how to behave? and I mean that in a supportive way because staff want to be trained.
0: What do you think those check-ins should look like? you know, once you've set, set the standards, how do you, act? do you just ask a teacher, oh, are you keeping up with those standards in your classroom or do you actually go in and do observations? How do you get the stuff on side? And kind of how frequently is that? Because you said they're at minimum annually, but I mean, a lot can slip in a year. So how, how frequently and what should these check-ins look like?
1: I mean, I'm a pretty simple person. Okay. I go back to my teaching analogy over and over and over again. How do you teach anything? How do you make sure people have learned it? Okay, now that's the question that most teachers can probably have a good stab at. And, and, and here's my answer. Here's how you teach. There's something I know and can do, and I want you to be able to know it or do it. So I present it to you in some way. I demonstrate it. I tell you I lecture it. Whatever. You know, we have a training program. I then get you to do something with that trip, with that learning. I observe it. I watch it. I then see what you get wrong, and I correct common misconceptions. I then reteach the parts that didn't land very well. I then retest you to see if you got it right. I get you to do something with it. You know, I observe it. And it's that it's that feedback loop. That's the teaching model, right? That's I mean, it's a very simple teaching model. There are much better ones, I'm sure. But that's probably, you know, a very basic one. Oh, and, and along the line, you drop in lots of revision and retrieval practice to make sure it's been embedded. But, but you use the testing effect, make sure people are always thinking about it. Okay, so transplant that to an organizational or institutional level. So what you do is you, you make sure there's a training program an induction program for new staff or an initial teacher training program for, for people who are you know, starting completely fresh. So you have that. These are the systems. These are the standards. You then make sure they are on, immediately after the course, you make sure they are on a targeted observation cycle, which should be a supportive cycle. It shouldn't be punitive. It shouldn't be connected to performance management or some kind of promotion or pay rise. It should just be, we want you to do this. Just like you're a student. We want you to be good at this. I hope you are. Once you've done that, You then reassess whether or not reteaching needs to occur. Now, this is labor intensive, but there's no greater investment you'll make than to train your staff in these types of processes and abilities because this is how your system, this is how your machine works. So that's one thing. And then periodically throughout the year, you make sure there's an observation cycle where these things are checked and assessed and retaught if necessary. And crucially, regardless of all that, there needs to be at least an annual reboot of the whole school behavior process. So the first day back in, well, for us it would be September. Amongst other things, you should probably spend almost all the day saying, right, let's just go over all of our processes one more time. Now 50% of your students, and by that I mean your teachers, your staff, will go, we know this. But you're making them think about it again. Get them to do something, get them to do a quiz on it or something. 25% of your staff will go, oh, I wasn't sure about that. Or really, do we do that? Okay, fine. And 25% of your staff will go, we have processes? And you know, and those are those are the ones in the diaries of need, just like in a class of any of any student. So I'm gonna suggest that by applying some of the pedagogical principles that we use with students in classrooms, we can also start to see institutional change at the whole school level, at a systematic level. But there have to be systems in place for the leadership themselves to know when to observe and to check these types of things. And one of the best ways of doing that is what I in my book, I call it The Beautification Schedule.
0: I was going to ask you to tell that story, actually, because I love it.
1: Oh, that's not a great story. But, you know, basically, in another life, I used to work for TGI Fridays uh, for, for far too long. Right? <laughs> that's a classic example of, of, of somebody with uh, ambition but nowhere to go. And I, you know, it was fun for a while, you know, but not, not that long. And basically, I think you've got TGI Fridays over in, in, uh, in, in Australia. You know, it's a big you kind know, of Americana theme. It's called dinertainment, you know. I'm going to hell just for saying that word. And, you know, the way it's all dressed as cowboys and uh, and that kind of thing. And the walls are festooned with, you know, fake Americana and, you know, and buffalo heads and and saddles and rifles and stuff like that. Restaurants get dirty. I mean, really dirty. Really, really, really dirty. And that kind of stuff is hard to clean and walls are hard to clean. And and different surfaces require different cleaning materials and so on. If you just left it to chance, the place would get filthy. And many restaurants do. Because they don't take cleanliness seriously, but this is a big company, a big chain company. It's a high-profile target for your health for your health inspectors, because health inspectors aim for the big companies. They you know they love to take them down, rightly so because they're chains. And so what they had was this thing called the beautification schedule, and it's such a simple thing, but it's 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 almost elegant in its simplicity. Which is, you look at everything that needs to be cleaned. I mean, you break it down, you write it all down. That needs to be, you know the, this can get dirty. You write down how to clean it. You write down how frequently you think it needs to be cleaned. You write down the products and the processes that are required to clean it. And you work out how long it will probably take to clean it. That's a bit laborious. But then you take all of that information and you break it down into things that need to be cleaned every day, like floors. Things that need to be cleaned every week, like when, maybe like windows or chairs or something like that. And things that need to be cleaned once a year, you know, the inside of the safe or something like that. You know, it's something, you know, let's less common. And then you break that up into a monthly, a weekly, and a daily schedule, and then you hand out that daily schedule to a member of staff who's in charge of the waiters or or the kitchen guys, and then you get the kitchen manager to check them out on it at the end of the shift. Did you clean it? Did you clean it? Did you clean it? It's as simple as that. So there's no one person in charge of cleaning everything. It's bit by bit, day by day. You you know, you you eat the elephant bite by bite, bite, as they say, and that's how big tasks get broken down, broken down, and done effectively. By multiple people who aren't necessarily all connected by some kind of hive mind. Everyone's doing their own individual thing. By the end of the year, everything's clean properly, or by the end of the week, things are clean properly. So forgive that's rather a long story.
0: I'll put, but you actually didn't finish the story because there were more levels of there were more levels of uh, like accreditation and checking in as you went up, if I recall
1: correctly. Well, I mean, uh, yeah, of course. So, but yeah, I mean, let, so I was a waiter for a couple of years, and then I was a bartender for a couple of years. When you were a waiter. If you were really good, you became head waiter. <laughs> That's where the big bucks were. And so you'd be head waiter and your staff, would, and you would have like 10 waiters on a morning shift. And so you would look at the beautification schedule and you, and you as the head waiter would assign each one of these members of staff one of the beautification tasks for that day. Then at the end of, your, at the end of that, your line manager would then come and check you out as the shift leader. So, so the shift leader checked out the waiters, the line manager checked out the shift leader, then the general manager checked out the line manager. And, and the thing is, if anybody hadn't done it, then they'd be told, you've got to do that again. Sometimes they would say, do the whole damn thing again, which nobody wanted. So, you had, to, so the incentive was to get it right the first time, particularly if you were in the night shift when you wanted to go home and it was two o'clock in the morning. And so, you know, the incentive was there to get it right first time. And I'm going to suggest that when it comes to line managing in schools, a really useful thing is for, you know, general managers or, lead, you know, senior leaders, principals to break down all the tasks, break down the have. And break down the, the the habits which need to be observed, and assign them to different people, and then they break it down further and assign it to other people. And that this needs to be a whole school process, which is massively moderated by the chair, by the the senior leadership, and it's kind of given to line management to then process. So, for instance, if I can use an example, let's take uniform. And I say uniform because we're crazy about uniform over here in the UK. You know, it's 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 just one of the things we will argue about all the time. I know it's not so popular in in, in Australia. But let's say you want to have a uniform or a dress code. And let's say you want to have a crackdown because things have got really bad. You know, kids are turning up with Mohicans and, 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 you know, wearing like leather jeans and so on. So you want to get things back to basics. So what you do is you say to all your teachers, we're going to have a uniform crackdown next week. But rather than just telling them on the Monday, you tell them like a week before. And you have maybe you might have a little after-school class with the teachers. This is what we want the uniform to be like. Have pictures on the wall. This is what most common errors look like. This is what we definitely don't want to see. You know, get you know, gang signs or gang haircuts or something like that. This is what we want you to say to pupils when you see these problems. And here's some suggested scripted lines to say when people do really well. This is these are lines for how we want you to challenge students, and this is where we want you to do it. This is where we want you to send children if they need to have the uniform. You know, really teach them the processes. So, so all the teachers go great. I really get this. Long in advance, email the parents or text the parents the week before to say next week we're going to really track down a uniform. So, this is these are the standards. And give them a little mini lesson at home. Do it with the kids on on Thursday and Friday. Next week we're going to go back to basics. You know, really prep it up because you're teaching, not telling them. And then Monday, boom, do what you say you're going to do, which is to say you delegate certain tasks to certain people. So. Form might be standing at their doors, checking people at the door. Senior staff might be standing at the gates, helping people to get things fixed at the gates. Administrative staff or auxiliary staff might be there on hand to help students with pieces of uniform that they need to replace or support students who can't afford uniform, you know, and so on and so forth. The thing is you allocate roles to these people and you make sure everyone does it. And somebody's monitoring them all. So somebody's walking around making sure everyone's doing their job. This is what we call line management. And then somebody's making sure that line, that line manager is doing his job. And for a while, you've got to intensively focus on that one thing. You can't focus on one. You can't make one thing your main focus forever. But you, but you say, we're going to do this for two weeks. And after two weeks, we're going to spot check once a week. And we're going to visit classrooms three times a week. And then you write down when these learning walks are happening to make sure everyone knows who should be doing it and when. And make sure somebody knows who should be doing it and when so that they're accountable for it. And it's this massive web of accountability, which I'm going to be honest, a lot of schools aren't that great at because a lot of people who get to management positions or leadership positions in schools haven't been trained in things like accountability and and, and how to have accountability conversations and so on. So for them, it's quite an alien thing, particularly if you've come up through the ranks because, let's say, you're a good good teacher. And all of a sudden, you're being asked to hold hold peers and colleagues accountable. That's a tough thing. And I think that's why a lot of schools fall down. When it comes to... God, what was the question? (laughs) That was a long time. They talked about, all oh, maintaining routines, right? Here's how the classroom teacher does it. The reason I started with the organizational level is because it's a massive help to the teachers if the organization is supporting them to do this. I mean, massive. That's a, that's a huge difference in the quality of, 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 of the teacher support there. However, let's say the school isn't great. Let's say you're just thinking about maintaining your own routines. One of the most important things is, number one, Know what your routines are. Don't have a vague idea in your head, you know, I just want them to behave. What do you mean by it? what are the routines you want them to maintain? Number two, write the damn things down. You know, codify it somewhere so that you can refer back to it, so you don't forget things, so your mind doesn't blur them, so that you can, you've can. you got a baseline of here's what I asked them to do. This will be my my core behavior routine touchstone, which I will return to frequently. And do so frequently. And script some of the things you'll see with children, and write it in your teacher planner. Monday, check uniform and equipment, first thing. Tuesday, check uniform and equipment, first thing. Next Friday, check uniform and equipment. You know, plan it into your plan it into your timetable so that you can forget it. I mean, a wise one, wise man once said about time management that we write things down to forget them, not to remember them. We write them so we can we can free up our, our working memory for things which we need to be thinking about. And I couldn't agree more. You know, we download our minds to some extent onto physical artifacts or digital artifacts in order that we can have them jog later on. And and tools like that are immensely helpful. Some people are really good at maintaining their own routines. But it's a bit like I'm someone this morning on Twitter was talking about, you know, how do I make sure I remember to take my pills in the morning? And it's a it's a hard thing, you know, it's a hard little habit to, to instill. And one of the ways in which you can do it is by anchoring. So for instance, if you always brush your teeth in the morning, and you know I'm kind of hoping you do. Then you can anchor taking your pills to brushing your teeth. So every time you brush your teeth, I'll remember to take my pills, and I'll keep the pills next to my toothbrush, and all that. You know, so it becomes the same thing. You you tied on to something which is already embedded and is already habitual, until it becomes a habit independently, and you have to maintain that. Similarly for a teacher, as long as you have the habit of opening up your planner the night before, then you can make sure you. Go, oh yeah, that's right. We're you know we're having a test that day. We're we're checking uniform that day. I've got to see that kid for detention. I've got to remember to thank that child for being so charitable in a previous lesson. That's why writing things down really matters, because you could forget about stuff. And people often forget the the value of a good list or a good diary. You know, the, you know, oh I'd I I don't bother using that. Use it. It's one of, that's one of the best habits you can get into. All
0: right, I'm gonna switch into devil's advocate mode here for a second.
1: There we go. Much of you Why do you hate children, Tom? Why do you hate <laughs> children? It's a good question.
0: One of the one of the kind of through lines of a lot of this discussion is about order control management themes like this and in your book you used a couple of examples to kind of illustrate the necessity of this kind of level of management and you talked about you know riots following the montreal police strike and you talked about more riots and looting following power outage in new york city and use these examples to say you know these are the kind of things that happen when suddenly order is removed, and that you know the people who enforce the laws or the rules you know go on a holiday essentially, I was kind of questioning that because there's this kind of an interesting mental model is the idea of scale and the way that systems change as they move through different sizes, so for example, the family operates in a very, very different way to the way that a state does, and actually Friedrich Hayek summarizes this really well in an interesting passage from his book that I'll read out now. And that is, part of our present difficulty is that we must constantly adjust our lives, our thoughts and our emotions in order to live simultaneously within different kinds of orders, according to different rules. If we were to apply the unmodified, uncurbed rules of the microcosmos, that is the small band or troop or of say our families to the macrocosmos, our wider civilization, we would destroy it. Yet, if we were always to apply the rules of the extended order, civilization, to more intimate groupings, for example, family, we would crush them. So we must learn to live in two sorts of worlds at once. To apply the name society to both, or even to either, is hardly of any use, and can be most misleading. that's from his book, The Fatal Conceit. So I guess one of the questions I have in relation to your book and this overall approach is... Is this the only way to do this? We're, we're taking assumptions that are definitely true for society. I mean, anarchists would disagree with us, but I ascribe to the, the view that we do need centralized power to keep society functioning. And we're applying it to smaller and smaller systems, like a school is still a pretty, pretty big system, but actually, a classroom, you know, that might have 30 kids, 40 kids, or it might actually have 12 kids. And that's getting a lot closer to the scale of a family. So, could it? Is there another way, Tom? Could we actually run classrooms like families instead of like, like corporations in the States?
1: No, I don't think so. I don't think so. And the reason, I'm, I'm and I'm really glad you brought up that point because <laughs> here's my pushback because, I mean, one of my, my, my passions is, is, is politics. I mean, I, my, my degree was political philosophy. That's, uh, I've got a master's in that. And that was, that was, I was always really, really passionate about that. And I find, it, I find it weirdly useful when discussing classrooms and so on. Because you, you start to think about, you know, how do people manage themselves? How do we act morally in, in groups and so on? And, and, and how, do we, how do we create systems by which we govern ourselves? And what does, what does justice mean? And what does fair mean? And so on. You know, these are really meaty topics I, I could happily discuss all day. I guess my main point is this, is that in my book, I slightly ironically quoted the Patrick O'Brien novel, The Ionian Mission. Which, which is about Captain Jack Aubrey, and he's having this conversation with his, with his, his friend, a doctor, Stephen uh, Maturin on ship. And he says to his friend, you've come to the wrong shop for anarchy, brother. You know, because the doctor is more of a kind of a 18th century, you know, progressive. He likes the idea of there being freedom for everyone and so on. And, and, and and liberty is, is obviously a massive prize to be valued. But there's never been a society which is entirely governed purely on personal relationships. It is when you look at a family unit, they tend to be governed not so much by rules; they tend to be governed by traditions, norms, rituals, accepted you know accepted practice. But in most families, there is still strong authority from, for instance, the adult presence. That you know, traditionally speaking, I mean, you know, and rightly so, because children need to be you know you can't say to children, "What do you fancy eating today?" Because they'll just say marshmallows or something. You know, you know, ungoverned, they will, they will make you know selfish, perhaps slightly irrational, suboptimal decisions. But once you start getting more than a few people, once you get to kind of the level of the village, you know, slightly beyond extended family, you can no longer rely on those tethers to make sure people act well towards one another, largely because the more people you have, the more likely it is that they've got very different ideas about what they want to do, what they want to achieve, which is another way of simply saying with a large enough group, you get lots more competition in terms of values. Aims, ambitions, and so on. So, two people might look at a piece of land and think, "Well, you know, I want to build a garden there." And some somebody might say, "Well, you know, I think we should just leave it." And some people might say, "Well, let's build a shop there." Boom! You know, you've got competition immediately. So, who wins? And when you get systems at the kind of village level, that's when you need to have much more structured levels of authority and people in charge. But not just people in charge, because ruling by whim is also you know dramatically unfair. You know, you, you you don't you don't want enabling dictators, what you what you want is some kind of a rule-based system with the capacity for that system to change, but within within its own rules. And I th- and I just see schools as being like that. There has never been, in fact, more than that, I see societies as being like that. There has never been a successful demonstration of the, the Marxist or the anarchist concept of society. There has never been a successful demonstration where power is devolved to, you know, to, to you know, agrarian village units and so on. And where people just somehow spontaneously agree to be good with one another. The problem is we all, we all have different ideas of what being good means. And we live in a very pluralist society, and good, I'm glad that we do. And one of the ways in which we rub along with each other in pluralist societies is by having certain conventions that we all have to adhere to and agree with, and one of which is, for instance, freedom of speech and tolerance of minority views and so on, up to an extent. But there also have to be no negotiables, like, you know, there shall not kill. And those sharp not steal and so on. Otherwise, societies can't function. And there was a really great study done just a couple of years ago by I think Oxford University, where they it was kind of a, a study of different cultures and societies through history. And they discovered that just about every about every culture that they studied seemed to be operate on the same seven moral principles. They tend to be things like um, you know the, the belief that life is sacred and property is important, and you know that we should have some kind of form of hierarchical authority and so. On. And that these were the only these were the only games in town. There are no other societies which really successfully operate either at scale or over a long period of time. And then that evolution selects rather truly against such experiments. And When you get to things like classrooms and so on, it's very difficult to say, because we're dealing with children here, to say to them, you know, let's all just be nice to each other. We've got no rules, but we're going to be nice to each other. Because children have got very different concepts of what being nice means. You know, bullies justify their actions by saying they deserved it. You know, and some kids don't like being looked at and think that's justification for punching somebody. So that's why you need to have, you know, the Leviathan, the Polis. That's why you need to have the 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 the, the demos. You know, the 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 sense of, you know, an authority which transcends the individual in order to adjudicate between individuals. I mean, this is the kind of classic liberal model of, of, of people like you know, like Rawls and so on. And I just think we can't escape that. If you want classes to run on the, you know, well, I mean, Hayek was saying, you know. That there are two different spheres there, and I kind of get that. I don't think they're completely separate, though. I think that the even the the, the family sphere still has conventions and norms. But those norms might not be codified to the atomic level, and the, and the consequences may not be codified to the atomic level. But you've got a crepuscular <laughs> version of it. You know, you've got you've got a, a, a semi version of that there. That there are certain conventions we're expected. You know, you don't tell your mum to ever. You don't have your elbows on the table. You know, you wash your hands before you have dinner. Things like that. They might not be spoken quite so frequently, but they're there. And the reason why laws tend to be codified is simply because without clarity and transparency, you have tyranny. You know, you, you have idiosyncrasy. You have women. You have rule by edict. And that's got to be avoided too, because the, the, the downfalls of that are, are, are you know, are very well known when we look at dictatorships and so on. So that's why I think that classrooms have to be run on rules and consistency and so on. Now, just to kind of tail this very long point, our society has laws and it has judges. And those judges have, the, have have got flexibility and leeway to interpret laws within certain parameters of tolerance, but the laws must be administered. So judges' hands are tied, but at the same time, they can interpret law. And law, lawyers can do their best to convince and persuade judges of that. And I think that's a very healthy part of the system because that's the flexibility within the system that allows it to wobble but not break because that's when you can start to accommodate individual circumstances, context, things which ameliorate or exacerbate the severity of penalties and so on. And I think that's a very necessary part of what we do, which is why you know even judges have got the ability to make judgment calls. And I think in schools, we've got rules and routines, but we also have line management who are, absolutely permitted to make exceptions to rules and routines as long as they themselves obey certain parameters of tolerance. So for instance, if a kid says F off to a teacher, you know, I, I'd, be, I'd be very close to zero tolerance on that. But if the teacher had said F off to them beforehand, ah, that might be one of those rare occasions where I go, well, okay, actually, I kind of understand why the student said that. Because the teacher themselves massively overstepped their boundaries there. So perhaps that's a rational response to the student, although you still might not want it. So in those types of circumstances, even in extreme cases, you might want to make exceptions. But again, those exceptions must be transparent, they must be logical, and they must be coherent with one another. So our people could scrutinize and inspect those decisions and say, I can see how you made that decision. I may not agree with it, but I can see how you made it.
0: Makes a lot of sense. I guess there's, there's kind of two, two spectrums that that add a bit of gray to this one is the, the scale of the school. So, you know, cause you can, can have some community schools that are like, I don't know, 50 kids or something. And you know, the way that you run a school like that is, can be very different to the way you run a school with 2000 kids. Yeah. So there's, there's this, there's that scale there. And then the other spectrum that adds a little bit of gray here, and not to say that you haven't added, added a lot of gray and I totally get, get where you're coming from. It's all gray. <laughs> it's all gray. Is, is that spectrum from child to adult, you know, cause we say a lot of times like we're, we're working with children here when they need support, but you know, suddenly they're 18 and then they go off to uni for two years or three years and they come back and then they're teachers. And it's like it's not a binary change, there is it? It's like a spectrum. So it's it's just really it's a really interesting and challenging environment in which we have to try to create systems that that work given all the uncertainties and given the the, the mixed aims that we're trying to trying to achieve as we as which is where we started off the discussion today.
1: Yeah, I mean when I said that you know behavior is like, like a curriculum, and I, I keep coming back because so I think it's such a useful analogy that if, you know if someone doesn't if someone can't do algebra, teach them arithmetic. If someone can't do arithmetic, teach them numeric recognition, you know, you go back to the foundations and you achieve some kind of level of mastery before you move on. Now, When it comes to behavior, we, we mentioned an example earlier on in our conversation about an entry routine for somebody in year 12 versus routine for someone in grade 3. And there may actually be lots of similarities, but of course there would be differences because you might expect different behavioral capacity of an 18-year-old or a 17-year-old. Of course you would, at the same time. If that behavioural capacity isn't there yet, then you have to teach it. So I've been to plenty of special or behavioural schools where you've got sixteen-year-olds being taught how to, you know, bite their tongue, manage their temper, not punch somebody when somebody rolls their eyes at them. That's the type of behavioural habit that you hope would have been instilled at the age of four, or five, and six, let alone at 16, 17. So you know, it, it massively depends on context. You know, people say to me, you know, should, should students be allowed to have their mobile phones in class? And my answer is always, always no. I mean, I, I, just, think, I just think it's a crazy idea. I think you've just introduced far too much distraction for students who don't need any more distractions in their lives and also need to be given a safe space from permanently being online. And also the, the detrimental effect of a mobile phone disproportionately disadvantages the already disadvantaged. So, you know, those are my reasons. Having, and then people say, oh, would you never allow a mobile phone in your classroom? I say, well, no, not never. You know, if I was teaching 18-year-olds, you know, I might trust them to have their phones down on the desk as long as the phones were turned down, so they couldn't see them. Even then, it would say, the phone has to be turned down, or to be honest, I'd rather it was in their pocket, rather than checking it. Because you know, even to an adult, it can be quite addictive and quite, or rather, quite compulsive to, to, to check. So, so context matters a hell of a lot, and the teacher needs to be sensitive to that, what the children are capable of. But you know, there's lots of circumstances where even older children aren't capable of these types of things, and we and we need to be alert and alive to that.
0: Two closing questions, Tom.
1: Wow, we made it. We
0: made it. We made it. What are, you, what are you currently
1: excited about? Could you specify what you mean by that question? That's appropriate for a podcast. Oh, I see. Right. Okay, cool. That just came out all kinds of wrong ways. <laughs> I, to be honest, I, they're, they're personal, and I, I, I hope that's okay. I mean, they're, they're personal. Please. Yeah, that'd be great. I mean, I, I mean, you know, there's lots of things. which which press my button, like going, going to Disneyland or something, right now, what really gives me a buzz is seeing – the emergent maturity of the educational ecosystem particularly in the uk if i'm honest but gradually internationally as well which has been catalyzed by things like twitter social media but also many other processes but based on this idea the educators are finally learning to talk to one another directly uh to criticize the the myths and the dogma of, of the past 30 or 40 years and to reinvent the profession and recreate the profession and to really reinvest in evidence-informed education and starting to look at what we actually know about learning and what we don't know and what we might know. And in terms of behavior, we're looking at things like best bets and highly probables rather than certainties, because certainty is probably overrated in the empirical world. Now, that, that's really pressed that's really my button and I'm really proud that as research head, I hope we've been part of the catalyst of that, we've been part of that process. And what that needs is obviously for educators to be able to speak freely to one another. I guess the, 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 the opposite of that question is what's, what's depressing me is that I, I see lots of territories where teachers are not encouraged to discuss freely with one another, where they are suppressed by their institutions, by their schools from having uh, frank professional conversations online and in public, which as long as they're respectful towards their, 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 their institutions and their students, I see no reason why they should be obstructed in any way and I will never stop banging my little drum about this, that, that, that teachers need to be allowed to speak freely to one another. And it depresses the hell out of me to see the, the, the institutions, which, I mean, if you want to talk about Foucault here, the institutions that want to retain power, being threatened by ground-up teacher professionalism, you know, that, that's not going to last, because these worms do not go back in the can. And people really need to get out of the way of teachers wanting to talk about things, in order for them to make a better world—not just for themselves and the profession, but particularly for children and particularly for the least advantaged children. So that's kind of exciting and also horrifying me. And I guess more more personally, I've got another i got another couple of books coming out. So we're got, running the room is doing great, and it's it's flying off the shelves. And I'm just—I'm so so honored that it is. I've got a companion guide coming out just before Christmas, and also crucially, I'm doing a leadership book called Running the School. Uh, based on my experiences of about 200 schools and their leadership styles and so on in terms of behavior. So, I mean, those things are really animating me because people are starting to talk about behavior in a mature and professional sense rather than relying on the, 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 the kind of the priesthoods and the gatekeepers and the dogma of the past. That's what's exciting me, Ollie.
0: Lots to be excited about there, Tom. That's great. And any last calls to action or things you'd like listeners to go away today and do?
1: Oh, God, sorry. I kind of I rolled this two into one then. So, yeah, so number one, I would say get online, start to follow some really interesting people because you will be able to start speaking to educators, academics, researchers, institutions that you never dreamed you could have spoken to before. You know, I mean, 15 years ago, as I said before, your your thoughts and comments could reach to the back of your classroom or your staff room if you were lucky. Nowadays, you can say something and someone on the other side of the world can, can be listening to it. I remember a couple of years ago, we ran a research ed in Melbourne and, you know, Given the time difference, it was trending on social media in the UK, which I just thought was a absurd because people were following it. People were following the clips and the streaming and the thoughts, and people were talking and so So that's the brave new world which, uh, in which we live, and 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 that's that. That's one of the best ways in which we can transform the profession. I would I would urge people to read Daniel Willingham, Paul Kirshner, uh, lesser known works by Tom Bennett, and really start thinking about how to get evidence into your classroom, and simply ask the question: Whenever somebody says you must do something, I would say to so I ask them, sure. What's your evidence for that? And then you can start to discern dogma from something which is a little bit more realistic. And that's how we change things, maybe slowly but definitely surely.
0: Tom Bennett, thanks so much for your time over these two days.
1: what oh, what a treat! It's been it's been great fun,
0: and yeah, it was over two sessions, so much to talk about. A few key takeaways for me. One one is just the importance of habits and seeing seeing the importance of routines and seeing behavior is really creating a habit and all the things that that entails. The idea of consistency, and especially you mentioned it, the idea came from Bill Rogers, the idea that it's not the severity of the sanction, it's actually the the consistency of it. And it's, it's the certainty of it that's really important. You would have noticed that I I mentioned it, the idea of threshold conversations was really a powerful idea for me and something I'll really be analyzing those scripts that you gave us examples of that were really, really fantastic. Um, and And I'll be writing them down. and one of the notes that I made in the margins of your book, it was actually a PDF, but let's just pr- pretend it was a it was a written one was that time you're teaching something, you're teaching something. And I, I think, you know, that came through really strongly in this interview. And it's, it's one that's kind of come through in multiple interviews. You know, the last one with Tom Sherrington, where we were talking about CPD. And it's like, anytime you're teaching something, it doesn't matter if you're teaching behavior, it doesn't matter if you're teaching teachers, it doesn't matter what you're teaching, you're always teaching something. And therefore, the rules of teaching apply and all the same principles apply. And I think that's just a really key idea relating to transfer that can be used in many, many contexts. So Tom Bennett, thanks so much for your time today.
1: Privilege and an honour. Good night,
0: Australia. Thank you for joining us for this episode of the ERRR Podcast with Tom Bennett. As always, you can find show notes with links to all of the resources that were mentioned at ollilovell.com, inclusive of links to the John Cat website where you can buy Tom's book, Running the Room, or pre-order Cognitive Load Theory in Action. And remember that code, ERRR30, for 30% off. And... If you'd like to start supporting the show and receive a 100% discount of Cognitive Load Theory in Action, go to patreon.com forward slash E-R-R-R and sign up for the average monthly donation of five US dollars and you'll receive your unique code before release day. Please share this episode with friends and colleagues if you got something out of it. And if you've got any suggestions for future guests you'd like to hear on the ERR podcast, I'd love to hear from you. Or if you've got any questions, comments, thoughts, or reflections on this episode or any other ERRR episode, I always welcome a contact from listeners via Twitter or email. Thanks for your time and listening today. Have a wonderful week. And until next time, keep learning.